welcome to The Weekly Skeptic, episode 44. I'm Nick Dixon, here as ever with London's third most famous shed-dwelling journalist, Mr. Toby Young. Coming up, Nigel Farage gets debanked, the Bank of England gets woke, and Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg gets investigated, plus loads more stories, and of course, peak woke. And Toby, let's start with this Farage story. I think I got his name, I pronounced it very badly there, but I can't be bothered retaking it, because he's been in the news a lot. First, he won the Trick Award for best news presenter, and then they deleted the tweet, uh, and it sort of reappeared without the advertiser in it, which was an interesting story in itself that I thought we'd cover. But then that was completely eclipsed by this banking saga, where, of course, he was debanked by his bank, which we later found out to be Coots, and he went to initially seven, then it was eight, now it's nine other banks, and they rejected his custom. And it's all been kicking off on Twitter today because there's been a claim from a BBC journalist here, Simon Jack, who says that Nigel Farage fell below the financial threshold required to hold an account at Coots, the prestigious private bank for wealthy customers, the BBC has been told. And then he says they offered him a NatWest account instead, which is kind of like a diss when you've been with Coots. But Farage has completely denied it was anything to do with his financial status. And it was other reasons, the fact that he's a politically exposed person. And uh, quite an interesting rebuttal here from Richard Bacon, who says that he replies to Lawrence Fox and says, nine banks, none of them speaking to each other about the client, all running a check and all reaching the same conclusion. It is as delusional as it is stupid to think that nine of them all independently made a political decision. Of course, in a completely moronic point, because they can easily be accessing the same database that says you're a politically exposed person, and that would be the obvious explanation. So that was stupid. He also said to you, Toby, he said, Richard Baker's really got it in for you. He said, when they came for Nigel, we said nothing. You're a brave soul, Toby. It's one bank. This was initially, and it was completely wrong because it was multiple banks. And you don't know why. When they come for you, I promise I'll say say something, but it will be sarcastic. So a kind of weird, like gloating in, in the new fascism. Then he did this other one to you today. He's really got it in for you. He said, a several hundred year old bank puts out a statement, Toby smells BS. Nigel Farage puts out a tweet, Toby smells truth. You are so stupid, Toby. I find it hard to believe you exist, which I thought was incredible projection. I mean, whatever you say about Toby and his wacky takes on things sometimes, where we sometimes think, What's, what, where's he coming from? Well, that's a bit, bit, a bit of a lib, lib take from Toby. But there's no universe in which Richard Bacon is smarter than Toby Young. I'm sorry. That's, who, who, that's absolutely who, ridiculous. Who, who is Richard Bacon? <laughs> He's who a former Blue Peter presenter who, who was, had a cocaine scandal. Oh, yeah. Did it involve laptops? You don't even know who he is. You're like, who this? That's the ultimate status move. You're like, who's this guy? (laughs) He's obsessed with you and you don't even know who he is. You should send him the Mariah Carey track. Why are you so obsessed with me? Yeah, maybe I, you know, cuckled at him one night in the Groucho Club back in the 80s and he's never forgiven me. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm having difficulty recalling. I certainly can't put a a, a face to the name. yeah, well, uh, yeah, I don't know what yeah, he had point. this big problem in um, in in. Well, he was, his phone was hacked, but then he also had this cocaine scandal. I'm just looking for it now, uh, and, and he also had an alcohol addiction. But anyway, I can't find the cocaine story. But that's the one thing everyone tweets at. Whenever he says anything now, forever people just tweet cocaine-related <laughs> jokes at him. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty shocking story. Um, what's happened to Nigel, um, and. Um, it certainly isn't an isolated episode. I mean, scarcely a day passes without someone reaching out to the Free Speech Union uh, to tell us they've been debanked. Um, and 
more often than not, the bank won't tell them why it's asked them to close their accounts. Um, they just cite, you know, uh, non-compliance with one of their policies, sometimes without even saying what the policy is. Or if they do, you look at the policy and it's got hundreds of clauses. They never give any detail as to exactly what you've done wrong. So it's very hard to appeal it, very hard to complain to the financial ombudsman or the financial conduct authority, let alone sue the bank. They won't give a reason as to why they've debanked you. But the people getting debanked are people who are either pro-Brexit, uh, gender critical, um, or Orthodox Christians, which suggests a pattern to it. It isn't just that these people happen not to be complying with uh, some technical, obscure policy. Um, it's because the banks disapprove of these people's opinions, because the banks, as we know, have been captured by the woke. Um, and uh, sometimes, you know, they let the cat out of the bag and actually explicitly say, we are closing your account because you said this and we don't like it. Uh, there, was an, there was a story of exactly that um, today. It was a group of, um, as a gender critical group that um, offer counselling to parents who've been told by their kids that unless they're allowed to transition, take puberty blockers and cut off their bits, they're going to commit suicide. So it's a really important charity, I think, that helps parents who find themselves in this situation. And they've just been debanked because, um, and, and, the, and, and in this case, the the bank has been explicit about why they've done it. They've done it because they disapprove of their political views. You know, the person they spoke to on the phone said, I went on a pride march last week. Um, yeah, and this was somehow part of the rationale for debanking them. But the reason I was skeptical, um, the reason I said I smelt BS when I read this story on the BBC, um, supposedly, um, uh, I imagine the source is Coots, don't know. Um, and, and if, by the way, Coots is the source, then Coots have breached all sorts of banking regulations and, um, they breached the confidence, you know, that 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 they breached Nigel Nigel Farage's confidence. But their story is the reason we debanked him is because he's just too poor. Um, this is a bank for rich people. You need, if you want to have a personal account, you have to have a million dollars, million pounds in it, or you have to borrow a million pounds, three million if you want a business account. Nigel didn't have enough money, uh, so we we had to kind of ask him to find another bank uh, for commercial reasons. Um, nothing to see here. Nothing to do with his politics. Nothing to do with him being a politically exposed person. He's just too wretchedly poor to hang out with rich folks like us in coops. Um, the reason I said I smelt BS is because, well, first of all, Nigel's been banking with Coots since 1980. Uh, and is Coots trying to say that at every point in the last 43 years, um, Nigel met these funding criteria? I very much doubt it. And Nigel has come out himself and said, you know, for the past 10 years, I haven't met that threshold. They didn't say anything to me about it until, you know, a couple months ago. Uh, in addition, is Coots really trying to tell us that every single customer of theirs with a personal account uh, either has a million pounds uh, in that personal account or has borrowed a million pounds from Coots and every person with a business account has three million in their business account? I mean, that's I'm sure that's not true. Um, and uh, and we know that there's a pattern here to people who've been debanked, not just by Coots, but by other banks too. And it's, uh, you know, people who support the Brexit party, former Brexit MEPs like Baroness Claire Fox have been debanked. Uh, we were contacted today. No, yesterday I was contacted by an old friend who was a fairly senior official, ex now of the Brexit party. And he was notified by his bank um, a few days ago that they're closing both his personal and his business account. Um, so there's a real pattern here. It's not because they breach some technicality, um, uh, as Coots is claiming in, in, in Farage's case. It's because the people who work at these banks, for one reason or another, don't like Brexiteers. Uh, it, it couldn't be more obvious. And um, 
Richard Bacon. It's not that I'm. It's not that I'm. You know, I just not that I'm credulously believing everything Nigel says. Um, but um, surely, you know, um, it, it makes more sense to believe someone um, uh, who is, you know, an anti-establishment rebel than it does to believe, you know, a bank. And one of the reasons the banks are, sorry, I can rant about this all day, you have to interrupt me in a second. But one of the reasons I think the banks have become so woke, um, you know, um, uh gone all in on pride, um, uh, uh, have introduced these kind of trans-inclusive workplace policies that their customers somehow have to observe. Um, the reason they're doing all this is because it's a very inexpensive way of trying to whip up some good PR, make them look caring and compassionate. They care about the vulnerable, which they need. They need that PR because they're closing high street branches hand over fist. Uh, they're only giving their savers interest of 0.85%, whereas they're charging their mortgage uh, uh, customers 6.5% uh, in interest. Um, uh, you know, um, They're laying off people, so it's impossible to get through to them when, you know, uh, you need to talk to them urgently. So, you know, they're in, they're in a kind of maelstrom of bad PR on a sort of daily basis, uh, and they need to do something about that. And this is a really cheap way of trying to generate what in their eyes is good PR. Plus, you know, if you embrace, if you become a kind of Stonewall diversity champion, and there was a story in the Telegraph this morning saying that most high street banks, possibly all high street banks are now part of the Stonewall diversity champion scheme and Stonewall come and audit your policies, make sure they are LGBTQI, blah, 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 inclusive. Um, and, um, you know, they don't want to risk not debanking someone who challenges this particular agenda because then, of course, they'll be accused of woke washing, which is exactly what they're doing. Um, and, you know, stop funding hate will be on their case and organize a boycott. So they feel like they have to debank people who challenge any aspect of the kind of trans activist LGBT agenda. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and, and by doing that, by signing up with Stonewall, they get more ESG points. Um, and that's why we have the absurdity of ExxonMobil, we found out last week, has more ESG points than Tesla. You know, a big oil company somehow has more ESG points than a manufacturer of electronic vehicles. I mean, completely absurd. But that's because ExxonMobil has gone all in on kind of woke gobbledygook, uh, whereas Tesla hasn't. Um, and so that's another reason the banks do it. I think it's also because the senior executives, the board members, they want to tell their children, their woke wives, their stroppy teenage daughters, that they're doing something about the vulnerable to help the disadvantaged. You know, look, I'm not just a, an evil capitalist, a member of the 1%. I'm actually doing something to advance the cause of social justice. We're now a trans-inclusive employer, you know. Um, and uh, uh, of course, they don't include in their definition of the disadvantage the office cleaners who probably earn less per year than they pay for their children's school fees. I mean, it's all just woke washing, status signaling BS. Uh, and um, uh, it makes me crazy, as you can tell. And um, it is just a horrible new uh, uh, form of cancel culture. It's more sinister than other forms because it's impossible to function if you can't get a bank account. Um, uh, and um, and people like you know um, uh, this um, uh, there was um, what's he called Hugo Rifkind, 
uh, wrote a piece in The Times this morning um, in which he said he couldn't see anything wrong with um, uh, 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 banks um, withdrawing custom from people whose views they disapproved of. He thought, you know, why not? You know, freedom of association, freedom of conscience. Um, you know, we shouldn't compel banks to do business with people they disapprove of. It's perfectly acceptable. And you think, oh, well, would that apply to uh, ex- what about a, a Christian bank, Hugo, that said it, it, it was going to close the accounts of a, of a customer because they were advocates of same-sex marriage? Would you find that acceptable? You know, do you want to repeal the Equality Act 2010, which makes belief discrimination unlawful because you think it's perfectly fine for companies to discriminate against people on the basis of their perfectly lawful beliefs? And he said that, you know, um, people were making a huge song and dance about about banks having to observe the politically exposed persons rule. And he said, I had to observe that rule because my father was a prominent conservative MP and they wanted lots of information about him when he tried to apply for a mortgage or something or a credit card overseas. Um, uh, you know, it's not it's not so many hoops to jump through. And I can quite understand why the banks are doing this. And someone on Twitter very amusingly wrote, um, uh, he, he, he slightly adapted what he said. So uh, the first part is him. The second part is the person on Twitter. This bank wanted reams of information going back years because my father had formerly been an MP, which is the explanation for why a person as mediocre as me writes for a national newspaper, which I thought was quite funny. But he he's like uh, Richard Bacon cubed, you know, uh, Hugo Rifkin. He's Richard Bacon with a degree from a Russell Group University. I'm assuming whoever this Richard Bacon character is probably left school at 16. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, he, he's just, um, he's like, whatever, what, whatever side he takes on an issue, the opposite side is the side to take. Well, unfortunately, our connection went just as you said, the joke about Rifkin, so I missed it. But um, but Bacon's dad was also in, it was in banking, by the way, as a, is another thing is another uh, wrinkle to this story. I have to say, I hope the uh, mic was okay for the listeners as well because we, we, t- we tested Toby's mic before he get, got angry before the podcast. We should get you quite angry before the podcast just to check because a few plosives there. You might want to either back off the mic or slightly reduce your input because once we once you got on that rant, Toby, it's just it's next level. But yeah, lots of great points. And um, Christina Jordan was another one that proves the point, another Brexit party MEP who, who had uh, banking problems. And yeah, the disgusting attitude of, of, of Rifkin and Bacon was shared by some other people. There's this guy, Keith Burge, not sure who he is. He said, first they came for Nigel Farage and I held the door open and pointed at Nigel Farage. All very clever and funny, but you're, you know, it's an appalling thing you're promoting. And Kay Burley was the most shocking from Sky News or Sly News, as Dan Wood likes to call it. And she said, if eight separate banks don't want your custom, I suppose you'd start to wonder why which I call the sassy pro-fascism take from Kay. I mean, that really is, that is basically fascism. You know, co- corporations working in league with political organizations, perhaps the EU, perhaps who knows, we don't know yet exactly what's gone on. But the idea of siding, well, oh yeah, yeah. there's probably just something, probably just your bad opinions. This is the, this is the um, communist, the Chinese Communist Party's rationale for um, uh, withdrawing people's access to the... Bank bank accounts um, because they've said something critical of the Chinese Communist Party or the local Chinese Communist official. Um, you know the, the the kind of rationale is well, it wouldn't have happened to them if they hadn't done something wrong. You know, of course they're bad <laughs> people. This only happens to bad people. You'll be okay. Um, I, I wanted to try and create this 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 ad, Nick, in which was a which was a, a twist on the um, national lottery ad, which had this kind of giant celestial finger choosing people at random and pointing at them and saying, it could be you, um, uh, meaning anyone could win the national lottery. But, you know, 
It could be Kay Burley. It could be Hugo Rifkin. It could be Richard Bacon that in due course are debanked. The idea that it's perfectly acceptable, nothing to see here. We shouldn't be worried about banks engaging in kind of wholesale censorship of people who banks politically disapprove of. The idea that that's that's fine because you disapprove of those people's views too is so short-sighted. You know, the political wind can change and then it'll be you in the firing line. You'll be debanked. And if you don't defend the debanking, if you don't defend someone like Nigel Farage because you're an anti-Brexiteer, you know, who'll be around to defend you when it happens to you? Yeah, I've seen Lawrence Fox use that argument on them a lot. And I always think, why are they so confident that it won't happen to them? And my assumption is it's because they'll simply adapt to whatever the ruling regime of the time is. That's why they have 100% confidence, because they, they can never be caught out. What do you think? Yeah, so if um, so, so basically Hugo Rifkind is saying, I've got no objection to banks um, exercising their right to freedom of association and freedom of conscience in this way. And if they decide in due course that they're going to apply exactly the same censorious principles to Remainers, um, then I'll just become a Brexiteer. It's fine. It's not going not, not to be a problem for me. <laughs> That's what I think, because how is it that throughout history, it's it's the same characters who are on the side of regimes and who, who undertake the orders, of, you know, whether it's, I know, you know, it's a, it was said to be a crass comparison comparing lockdowns to the Nazis and so on. But I just think my theory is throughout history, the people who naturally side with authority and say, what's the problem? Why don't you want to give them your DNA? You know, what's wrong with these, with what uh, the Germans are saying? It will always be the same people. What's wrong with lockdowns? We need them harder and earlier and more. They'll always be the same people, and we'll always be the people saying, hang on, we're not sure about this. I just think those characteristics are locked in. That's my theory, and I, I, so that's why I think they'll be endlessly adaptable. Yeah, but it's um, but they can't. That, that can't be consciously why they're not objecting to the debanking of people whose views they don't share. Um, they're not. They're not actually. I mean, I, I don't suppose Hugo Rifkind would admit, even to himself, that the reason he's not worried about it is because he'll just blow with the wind and just embrace whatever opinions he's required to in order to remain a member of polite society. I imagine he thinks that, um, you know, uh, Nigel view, Ni- Nigel Farage's views are actually reprehensible. Uh, and there isn't really a place for people like Nigel Farage in the banking system. Uh, if he's forced out of the country because he can't open an account in the UK, no bad thing. We don't really want people with such reprehensible views polluting our airspace. I imagine that's more likely to be his view. That's what he consciously thinks, absolutely. And I've seen people even gloating about the prospect of Farage leaving the country and, and making jokes about it. So exactly, no, that is their explicit and, and conscious view. His view, he's beyond the pale. There's no one like him in my bubble. So he's probably evil and he should be debanked. And they're just so short-sighted, like you say, they couldn't, they can't empathize and imagine it possibly happening to them. But my little armchair psychology <laughs> is that beneath yeah. that, they know it can never happen to them because they know they're just endless cowards and they'll adapt <laughs> to anything. And um. And, and, and by the way, the idea, I've got to say this, to, I want to get in my standard top G reference, the idea that Farage really was just too poor very much reminded me of the Tate pizza box, like Tate pizza box hoax, where like, oh, he got arrested because he was mocking Greta and he had a, a pizza in Romania, as if the Romanian authorities can't track him to Romania and haven't been monitoring for ages because they already raided him mm. before. So it was a kind of a, but it, it deflects and it ridicules you know, oh, you're an idiot, you got caught out because of a pizza box. In the case of Nigel Farage, oh, you're an idiot who just doesn't have any money and, you you know, you just have to bank with normal Nat West. And it's just made up, but it's just, you know, it, it deflects and ridicules rather than dealing with the actual problem. And the other thing we haven't raised, a really big point, is is Reverend Richard Fothergill. 
a total legend, vicar from Windermere, Cumbria, where I went to school. And like all people from my area, he's a total ledge. And he was discriminated against. And you brought this up, I think, as well. I think you were one of the first people to mention this. But he, he was discriminated against by the Yorkshire Building Society, who cite this as their reason. They say, we would only make the difficult decision to close a savings account if a customer is rude, abusive, violent. And you go, okay, maybe. Or discriminates in any way. And that's where you go, oh, I see. So anything that you class as discrimination. And, and Fothergill complaining about the ridiculous pride displays in banks in the bank was enough for him or the building site. It was enough for him to be shut down. So, you know, everyone loves that it's Farage, but of course it does happen to ordinary people is happening to ordinary people. And Richard Fothergill's a classic example. And um, the only other thing I didn't mention is that Peter Tatchell's come out on Farage's side. Quite interestingly, we see all these, these horrible people saying that Farage should be, you know, exiled forever. But actually, Peter Tatchell says, I oppose Nigel Farage on many issues, but it's outrageous that his bank accounts have been closed on political grounds. Banks are out of control and unaccountable. They're policing people's thoughts, defend free speech and banking without discrimination, which which is a, a good good take from Peter there. Yeah, um, he can be quite sound on some of these issues. Um, he eventually, in, in, the, um, in our gay cake case, um, he um, initially took the side of the... I think the the, the person who uh, had complained that um, Asher's Bakery wasn't prepared to bake a cake celebrating same-sex marriage, um, he initially took that person's side, but later he changed his mind and thought, well, actually, if a if a baker can be compelled to bake a cake celebrating same-sex marriage, then a baker could also be compelled to bake a cake opposing same-sex marriage, and he he understood that. Um, you know, uh, there was a distinction between compelled speech and, you know, um, uh, just just not agreeing in this particular case with what the baker what the baker's position was. Um, so he yeah. can be, you know, quite sensible and principled. Um, the Free Speech Union has been lobbying the government since um, uh, me and the Free Speech Union and the Daily Skeptics PayPal um, accounts were. Um, uh, uh, suspended um, uh, last September. We've been lobbying the Treasury and the government to change the uh, financial regulations um, to make it impossible for banks and payment processors like PayPal um, to uh, uh, cancel people's accounts um, just because they disapprove of um, something they've said, provided it's perfectly lawful. And we think we're making some headway on that. So Jeremy Hunt said on Monday that um, he was going to ask the Treasury to take a look at the payment regulations. We can't have people debanked for um, exercising their right to lawful free speech. And that phrase, right to lawful free speech, was repeated by Rishi Sunak and Andrew Griffith, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury. So I think that phrase is going to be inserted into the payment regulations. Um, uh, uh, and, it, it, and not only that, but I think they're going to insist that banks, when they do debank you, have to explain exactly why they're doing it. They won't just be able to, to cite some general policy without specifying exactly how you breached it. They're going to have to come up with an adequate explanation. And th the combination of those things will mean that if a bank says to you, as some banks have said to some people they've debanked, we're debanking you because we disapprove of your particular political viewpoint. 
you will then be able to complain to the Financial Conduct Authority or indeed sue the bank um, because it's unlawful under the Equality Act to discriminate against people on the basis of their beliefs. I mean, if you can prove that a bank has done that and that's why you've been debanked, you could sue them uh, under the Equality Act. Um, but you can only do that if you're an individual. So I couldn't sue um, uh, on behalf of you know the Free Speech Union or the Daily Skeptic because companies can't um, sue for discrimination under the Equality Act. Anyway, so the rules need to change uh, to stop this from happening. And it looks as though there is some appetite to do that on the government's part. Yeah. But um, I dare say they won't go far enough. I was going to say, the only part we hadn't covered is that Jeremy Hunt is deeply concerned about it. So it's going to be solved, Toby. If Jeremy Hunt is deeply concerned, <laughs> I expect there'll be massive sweeping action. And and this was one thing, I was, last thing I was going to ask you about on this. I mean, have you been naive? Some people on Twitter implying that, not naive, but I mean, too optimistic. I mean, people are implying that, oh, nothing will actually happen. I mean, the Tories have been in 13 years, etc. haven't done anything about this, have let the culture war completely blindside them, or they don't care about it, or they are actually on the woke side. But this is another example. They've just completely been asleep at the wheel. And as you explained it to me yesterday, they have currently the banks are supposed to give you 60 days notice if they're going to close your account and a reasonable explanation of why they've done it. And they're not even imposing that that's not even being mm. enforced by the government or anyone. Mm. So they need to go further than that and allow for free expression, as you said, but they're not even applying what's already there. And I said it's yes. not great to be – it's still not great to be like, by the way, you have to leave the country in 60 days. It's better than today, but it's still not great. <laughs> yeah. And they're not even applying that. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, uh, it's not enough to um, just change the regulations if there's not going to be a vigorous enforcement mechanism. Uh, and at the moment, the only enforcement mechanisms are the financial ombudsman and the financial conduct authority. But I think if they do change the rules in the way I'm expecting them to, I might be being optimistic, but I expect them to to do how I what I just described. Um, uh, it will become easier for individuals who are debanked to sue banks for belief discrimination, um, uh, particularly if they're upfront about that's the reason they are closing your account um, and. Um, uh, I imagine the way banks will try and get around this is they'll say, um, yes, we're not debanking you because we disapprove of anything you've said. That's got nothing to do with the decision. And they often say that these days. Um, uh, we're debanking you for another reason. And then and then they'll either say something quite vague, like they'll quibble about how much detail the new rules require them to disclose, or they'll come up with something which is actual, actually just BS um, and not the real reason. But, you know, it might be possible to find some minor technical rule that someone's breached. You know, they didn't pay off the overdraft quickly enough, or they didn't respond to a bank query quickly enough, or didn't fill out a form they'd just been sent in their email like three days ago. Um, uh, so they'll try and get around it, I imagine, by kind of uh, you know um, a creative interpretation of the new rules. But it will send it will send a signal to the banks if 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 something is included in the payment regulations about not debanking people because they've exercised their right to lawful free speech uh, and um, you know the publicity around these debankings can't be very helpful i mean the reason coots i think probably misstepped today and disclosed confidential information about one of their customers uh, which you know i think could expose them to a lawsuit um, is because they're terrified you know of the bad publicity even though Nigel himself has been quite circumspect about not naming Coots, as you said. Um, he didn't name them, but I guess everybody knows that it was them or the news is beginning to get out. So now they're desperately trying to kind of um, uh, do some damage control. Um, but clearly banks mind about this kind of thing. Uh, you know, and and, and it, boycotts are always a possibility. You know, 
in due course, it could be that one of these banks is is bud lighted, um, and you know the entire bank collapses, and lots of banks, you know, are in not a particularly healthy position to begin with. Um, so um, you know, it, it, it could change in due course, and I think I think if the government does do something along the lines I expect, I'm expecting them to, uh, and we've asked them, the free speech unions asked them to do, um, I think it will help. It won't solve the problem, but it will help a bit. Okay, well, let's see what happens with that. I think we've covered it pretty thoroughly. Um, Should we move on, unfortunately, to yet another bank story? The Bank of England, who have said people of any gender can be pregnant, which is absolutely shocking, particularly from the Bank of England, who, as I said on GB News, we need to be sober and in touch with reality and dealing with things like interest rates and inflation. If they say that a man can be pregnant, then all bets are off, really, aren't they, when it comes to uh, fixing the liability-driven investments or something. I mean, if they can't handle the basics of biology. Yeah. So the Bank of England are apparently a Stonewall diversity champion, which is why yes. they've said all these things. Um, uh, but um, uh, it begs the question, you know, if 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 um, Gillian Keegan ever gets around to publishing her trans guidance for schools, and if that trans guidance says teachers pupils don't have to use the preferred gender pronouns of trans-identifying children, Um, and if it generally um, falls on the gender-critical side of that particular debate, will the Bank of England debank the United Kingdom? Will they say, I'm sorry, you can no longer be a customer of the Bank of England. We're not going to act for you anymore because you're you're not trans-inclusive enough. Well, hang on. So, did, but didn't didn't Gillian Keegan say that they they children? She just came out and said children should be able to choose choose their own pronouns. Well, it's it's complicated, but I think and the guidance hasn't been issued yet. And um, uh, there was a leak to the Sun a few weeks ago, uh, uh, which which said what was going to be in it. And um, but one of the things that a lot of people on the Christian, conservative, gender critical side didn't like is that the guidance was supposedly going to say um, uh, schools cannot be complicit in the transitioning of children without parental consent. Um, And if parents give consent, schools in some circumstances can still refuse to um, be complicit, still refuse to affirm the gender identity of the trans-identifying child. But in some cases, if the school knows that the parents have consented and they have no safeguarding objection to using the child's preferred gender pronouns, et cetera, et cetera, then in those circumstances, it would be acceptable for the school to affirm the self-diagnosis of the trans-identifying child. And that's what people have objected to because people think, no, schools just cannot participate in this charade, this denial of biological reality in any way, even if the parents consent to the school's doing so. And so the guidance has been held up. There's a bit of a a row, I believe, between Downing Street and the Department for Education. And it all turns on, well, we don't want to issue guidance, which can then be judicially reviewed, because, you know, um, one side or the other will think it doesn't go far enough, or it goes too far, and they'll try and judicially review it. So we have to make sure it strikes the right balance, and cannot be successfully, you know, um, uh, defeated in the High Court. Um, so um, it'll be some weeks yet, I, I imagine, uh, before that guidance is issued. Um, but um, I imagine, um, however moderate it is and however good a compromise it strikes, 
both sides will be unhappy, but but I expect the unhappier side will be the trans activists, and they're the ones I think more likely to jr it um but my 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 facetious comment which actually i stole from someone called adrian hilton on on twitter um uh, is that um if 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 the dfe if the british government supposedly issues um guidance trans guidance for schools which you know stonewall condemns as being trans exclusionary or transphobic um then you know will the bank of england debank the country yeah it's a good point and and so, all right, that's that explained. But just back on the actual Bank of England bit, which I have in front of me, because there's more to say about this. Like you say, it's all to do with Stonewall's diversity league table nonsense, which in my opinion, and surely any sane person's opinion, has been completely debunked by Stephen Nolan on the BBC documentary, where he famously asked the editor of Pink News, watch Two-Spirit then? Can you explain Two-Spirit? And he couldn't. And he said, watch Gender Queer? And he didn't know what that was either. And it was completely debunked and exposed as a pyramid scheme wherein you try and get to the top of Stonewall's diversity table. And who do you ask for advice on this? Oh, Stonewall. And you pay them a fee. And then they can bring you up in their own diversity table. I'm like, this is, I mean, pyramid schemes even is too generous. I mean, it's just like a straightforward shakedown. And and incredibly, the Bank of England is part of this. And and these views that they that are being revealed here by the Times in this particular article appeared in its 2022 submission to be in Stonewall's list of top 100 employers. So something so disgusting about this. And they said, look, we've introduced family leave, a family leave policy that includes the phrase birthing parent, and we don't specify gender. <clears throat> and it's like, imagine like, imagine like humbly petitioning Stonewall this way. There's something so grotesque about that. And they've got gender neutral toilets on the seventh floor of its headquarters. Don't know why the seventh floor. They're including pronouns and email signatures. They're encouraging staff to be allies. They are, they've got quantitative targets for LGBT employees, which is equity, which is equality of outcome, which is appalling communism. And then they've got, or worse than communism, <laughs> some sort of weird gender communism. Then they've got this, and I and I sympathize with my with the people I know at the Bank of England. It says each bank employee, of whom there are 4,000 in the UK, was expected to have a diversity and inclusion objective for each calendar year, and all would be assessed on it. Imagine being assessed on your yearly, how diverse have you been this year? Um, well, I spoke to a black lesbian at a bus stop. What, what are you supposed to say? It's completely absurd. The idea of the Bank of England enthralled to Stonewall's pyramid scheme, Toby. What is going on? I know. And, you know, and meanwhile, inflation is out of control. They're asleep at the wheel because <laughs> presumably they're spending so long in these kind of affinity group workshops, kind of figuring out how they can be better allies. Um, but y- you made an interesting, a very interesting point there, Nick, which was um, you. you referred to the fact that um, under cross-examination, quite mild questioning, actually, from Stephen Nolan, um, they couldn't answer. Um, and um, the same point was made to me. So I had a drink last week with an Irish uh, journalist and playwright called Felham McAleer. And um, he's written a verbatim play based on transcripts from the um, uh, trial in the Charity Commission Tribunal in which mermaids a trans charity, tried to get the LGB Alliance, a gender-critical charity, struck off, deregulated by the Charity Commission. And we're going to get the verdict in that case, I think, um, in a couple of days' time on July 6th. Uh, We're going to find out whether Mermaid succeeded in effectively uh, no-platforming the LGB Alliance. But during, I don't know if you recall this, but during the tribunal 
hearings, um, they summoned various Stonewall uh, staffers. One of them had to appear with with their therapy dog, um, and um, and a and a you know a KC, uh, the barrister for the LGB Alliance, cross examined um, the um, witness for Stonewall, you know, appearing on Mermaid's behalf, um, uh, and um, and asked them similar questions to the question, you know. Stephen Nolan asked someone from Stonewall, and no, he, you know, he, he, to be very fair, because to be, I know you're a journalist, yeah. Toby. I think he asked it of Benjamin Cohen, who's the CEO of Pink News. Okay, uh, I sorry, believe that's who it was. But it's part okay, of okay, this okay, investigation, okay. and you know, can right. even this kind of expert in the area right, explain right. it to me? Well, no, he can't. Similar questions were asked um, of these Stonewall employees um, by the barrister acting for the LGB Alliance, and. Felon pointed out to me uh, that what makes the play quite entertaining, um, uh, quite funny in parts, is that they just couldn't answer the most basic questions. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they had no idea how to defend their particular ideology. Um, and I think there are two explanations for this, um, a superficial one and a deeper one. The superficial one is that they all exist in a bubble and no one ever challenges anything they say. Um, so they don't know how to rebut, you know, the most basic challenges. You know, they're just totally wrong-footed, stunned, left speechless when you say, you know, um, uh, uh, something like, um, uh, surely sex isn't assigned at birth, it's linked to your chromosomes. And you, they, they don't know how to deal. They just can't answer those sort of basic objections because no one's ever made, never heard them before. Um, but, but the deeper reason, I think, is that the ideology itself is paper thin. It's not rooted in anything. Um, uh, it's not really thought through. They haven't bothered to master, you know, the kind of uh, er texts of gender theory by Judith Butler and Michel Foucault. Um, uh, uh, they just kind of, they've just kind of, you know, it's like a kind of, it's, it's that their appreciation of it is skin deep. It's based on reading, you know, paragraphs, nothing longer than a paragraph on Instagram. So it sort of begs the question: Well, if their grasp of this ideology, if the ideology itself is so thin. Um, why is it so unbelievably powerful? Why do they why do they allow it to dictate you know uh, banking practices which um, are ultimately catastrophic for their company's reputation? I mean, it's um, it's sort of it's a it's a puzzle, isn't it? Well, it might be because they don't want to read a long text by Michel Foucault, but um, <laughs> it could be one good reason. But also, <laughs> well, of course, they're terrible writers. Everyone on the on the woke side cannot write. That just seems to be oh, a yeah. given. I mean, Derek unbelievable, turgid prose. Yeah, yeah, awful, awful stuff. Yeah, I, I once right. went to see Derrida give a lecture at Oxford, um, and um, if you thought his written work was bad, you know, my God, I wouldn't recommend trying to understand, you know, one of his public speeches. It was just Shocking. incomprehensible logoria. Yes, I've tried to read people like Jean Baudrillard, the symbolic exchange and death, and you, you read it and you end up just going, yeah, this is just bollocks i've understood it but it's all bollocks but okay. and um you know where's the greatest writers are people like michelle welbeck who were of course you know ultra non-woke misogynists so what does that tell you um <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But on, on this point i was gonna I had a good point there Toby, before i got distracted with my uh, yeah, well, you, you, literary you, you, you said you said the reason they they haven't they, they don't know in more depth oh, yeah. why they've taken the positions they have is because they can't be bothered to read these very turgid long boring books and that's understandable mm. uh, but isn't there a is, is, but if they had if they don't really understand what's informing their position why why do they hold that position so passionately and want to basically yes. kill people who don't hold it yeah well i can answer that it's because it's passed down to them as 
this is virtuous. And they just are the kind of people who just accept it, much like the Rye College teacher who was lambasting children and saying they're evil. They just accept it because, much as we said before with Mr. Hugo Rifkin, they're a type of people, slightly different phenomenon, but a similar kind of phenomenon. They're a type of people who receive guidance and just go with it and go, okay, this is now virtuous. They're not the kind of people who question. And they, uh, it's a similar point. They're flexible. You know, it, after 9-11, they'd have been saying we should stop and search Muslims or anyone who looks Muslim. I know because I know I know these people. And then now they'll be saying BLM is is such a great thing. And they just say, it's the current thing. It's the name of my other podcast. I support the current thing. They support the current thing, Toby. It's like the Ukraine war. This is why we've argued about Ukraine, but not that it's like you have to be pro-Brutal, but it's just like the thing moves on that you have to support and have your Ukraine. You yeah. can be pro-Ukraine, but it's like you have to have your Ukraine flag and you say yeah. F Putin and, and all this. And then it's like, and then you move on and say the latest thing. What do you think? Yeah, so let's call this the Stonewall's willing executioners hypothesis. Um, uh, but 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 I, I think that's partly it. Um, uh, they just they just blow with the wind, embrace the current thing because for them, remaining current, bien pensant, that is the kind of key thing. That's the way they signal that they're part of a high status group. But I think it's also just a kind of part of human nature is to be quite tribal. You know, people like gathering in tribes and part of that tribal sense of identity is wanting to destroy the rival tribe you know it's i think nietzsche said that um, a good war justified any cause it isn't the fact that you know you profoundly disagree about something fundamental that causes two tribes to go to war they ju- it's joy de guerre they want to go to war because they want to fight they're spoiling for a fight they want to kind of affirm their identity their membership of the tribe so it doesn't really matter if they don't understand the cause of the conflict they just want to be involved in conflict is it very interesting yeah and i also wonder if one could critique our side and say perhaps we just will always take the contrarian side or the punk side because you were a punk. You revealed to me that you jumped on stage during an Iron Maiden concert, although that's not quite punk, but it's kind of a not similar spirit. Yeah. And and you were into, you had a punk band that was a ska band. And, you know, I've always been that kind of person as well, not literally into punk music because I'm a little younger, but was into, you know, whatever the rebellious music was and rebellious stances. So is, is that the critique of our side, Toby, that we'd always just inherently take, instinctively, well, sorry, take the other side? I suppose, it, 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 and now you're um, conservative, which is a new punk. That's my point. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I, I always think that um, actually um, my politics haven't really changed. People say, you know, how can you be a member of the Conservative Party when you used to be a punk? Um, but actually, you know, if I think it's a smaller journey to go from being an anarchist to believing in, you know, small state, low tax rule of law, than it is to go from being an anarchist to go on a march protesting that, you know, people aren't being taxed enough because we need to spend more money on the NHS. That seems to me to be a complete 180, whereas I've moved maybe 25 degrees. Um, mm. But um, So your views uh, haven't changed, just the outfits is one way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you haven't got the uh, but punk I think outfits, let, let... you've now got a conservatory, but you've still got the shed keeping you punk. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, but but for me, that... that that's, um, uh, that that argument, which people think is a, a knockdown argument, you know, um, you're intellectually no better um, than an intellectual conformist. You just you're just um, an intellectual nonconformist, and you always take the contrarian side, whatever the kind of orthodoxy is. Uh, but I, actually, isn't it better? from a kind of moral and spiritual point of view, um, to take the contrarian side. We are, you know, w- at least we're, we're, we're um, challenging 
you know the status quo we're 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 speaking truth to power uh, we're taking the side of the ideological underdog and surely that's better than going with the powerful and going with the grain even if there is no more intellectual basis to our position than that of our opponents it's certainly better and i would also make another argument that maybe it's sequentially the other way around so maybe it's that that one looks at reality as 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 clearly and level-headedly as as one can and comes to a conclusion and that conclusion naturally opposes the received wisdom because received wisdom is always wrong because received wisdom is ossified it's what was the case x amount of time ago it's now the conformist view like in science that every time something radical and new comes along all the other scientists hate that hate that in real science not the science that came along during covid everyone hates that person and says go away because they're going to usurp the new scientists. So is it is it the case, Toby, that if one looks with a clear head and says things like, no, I don't need the safe and effective treatment, for example, actually you tend to be right, whereas once something is ossified into groupthink and once it has 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 a impure motivations like supporting the group or, or maintaining your funding or virtue signal or any number of other things, that it's by nature bound to be false. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think yeah, I think even if, I think, I think, Part of part of that is right. I think even if we instinctively um, oppose whatever the kind of current thing is, we're more likely to be right than people endorsing the current thing because the current thing is more often wrong than right. Um, but I don't think that we should be sceptical about conventional wisdom by default. I mean, you know, um, as a conservative, I think that. Um, wisdom that stood the test of time, um, often embodied in the form of institutions, traditions, laws, um, have, have withstood the test of time for a good reason. Um, and we should be cautious about tearing them down. That's what Chesterton's mm. fence argument. Yeah, that would be the Scrutonian argument. But I, I think that's a different point. That's to do with sort of eternal verities or inherent truths or like like beauty being being uh, being what's the word sort of objective and I think beauty is objective so you know we, we don't need brutalist architecture because the same things are beautiful now as always were so I think there are certain things that are always the case that conservatives want to preserve so I'm not talking about that I'm talking more about trends that have ossified a certain trendy way of thinking that has become unquestionable perhaps like the NHS is amazing or something is, is, mm. is one of them it, 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 maybe the NHS had some good th- at some point but then it now it's rubbish so that's very different from we should preserve our our English uh, greenery, which is always going to be inherently beautiful. So slightly yeah. different I mean, thing, I think. One interesting wrinkle to this debate is that um, some people criticise me um, for not being contrarian about everything. It's like... Yeah, I've done because that. I'm not because, because I think you've done that. It's because <laughs> you know Ukraine war. You, you Ukraine war. Yeah, <laughs> you know risky. how can you be a cuck? You know why? Aren't, why don't you just oppose every single thing? You know the establishment <laughs> is supporting. How can you support one thing the establishment is supporting? But I think that surely that just that reflects the fact that I'm a thoughtful, independent-minded person who makes up my own mind. It doesn't just instinctively take the contrarian position. I think I think I think you know we're probably being slightly unfair on ourselves if we if we are at, at, you know admitting to just being contrarians for the sake of it. I think for the most part um, even though I am naturally skeptical about whatever the conventional wisdom is um, or the rather the kind of current thing is um, uh, uh, I don't always conclude that 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 you know the, the conventional wisdom is wrong. No, well, I I, I've said I don't think we are just being contrarian. I think I'm genuinely just trying, forming my own opinion based usually on intuition, which I believe in. Uh, so the only difference between you and me is I far more frequently 
come down against the establishment as you sometimes, like you say, you go, actually, I like Zelensky or something, whereas I don't. But I, st- I don't think that makes me more concerned. I think that's just, I think that's just because, I think that's just a, perhaps a generational difference in, in how corrupt we think the establishment is, whereas you have mm. a, a tiny bit more faith in it than me. That, is, that could be the difference there. Yeah, quite possibly. I hate to bring age into it. But uh, um, <laughs> so a bit of a digression there. But um, should we move on to Jacob Rees-Mogg? I've got this yes. uh, story about Ofcom. So I always like to do an Ofcom story. Our friends at Ofcom. And um, Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, we have to call him Sir now, and he's, he's earned it. We all love um, we My football team would disagree. <laughs> I absolutely hate Mogg, but of course we like him. And he is a colleague of mine. And he's received 40 complaints objecting to him uh, acting as a newsreader during a court case involving Donald Trump. So the question is, whether politicians are allowed to act as newsreaders, which apparently they're not, except in exceptional circumstances. So it's this weird Ofcom landmine about, I mean, Ofcom, I mean, even Estimate Vey and, and Philip Davis are in, are in a potential thing where they may have done something wrong. It's very, very complicated getting these things right. And this is why I don't really like Ofcom. Well, of course I don't like Ofcom. I think it's completely unnecessary. But I must also say that 40 complaints, two comments on that. One, why are we listening to 40 nutters at home? I mean, the tweets I get complaining about everything all the time. Why should we honor these complaints? Number two, these are rookie numbers compared to Lewis Schaefer, who managed to get 151 complaints to say that COVID didn't exist. So 40 complaints, not very much, but yet we're going to have to go through all this investigation stuff again, Toby. Yeah, um, tedious. I mean, I think the Ofcom's rationale for investigating this particular complaint is that there has to be a Chinese wall between the news presenters and um, the opinionated hosts on um, GB News. Uh, I know that doesn't apply to headliners exactly, but you have kind of license to kind of be opinionated because you're being funny, um, uh, even though you're talking about the news. Uh, uh, so I don't think it applies to that. But I think generally, that, and that, that is why, as I understand it, um, before you know, we see Calvin Robinson or Lawrence Fox or Nigel Farage or indeed Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, for their programmes, there's always a news bulletin. So it's signposting to the viewer that there is a, cl- there is a hard and fast distinction here between people who are reading the news and the people who are expressing their opinions about the news. Um, and you're allowed to be opinionated about the news, but newsreaders aren't because they are supposedly trusted, objective tribunes of the news. And that, so that's why they feel like, um, I guess that's why they're pursuing this, this complaint. But um, of course, I'm sure all the people um, who've complained are not people who felt in any way confused about whether Jacob was a newsreader or, you know, a, an opinionated host. Um, they're just vexatious complainants who don't like Jacob's politics. Um, and yeah. uh, there was a really worrying uh, ruling last week from Ipso. I don't know if you followed that, but Ipso upheld a complaint uh, against the Sun newspaper based on Jeremy Clarkson's Meghan Markle column. Um, and uh, what was what was what was new about the upholding of that complaint? They said they said they found it to be sexist, uh, which is uh, slightly odd, a slightly odd thing to say. Uh, and Ofcom, uh, Ipso, like Ofcom, is supposed to distinguish between uh, news pieces uh, and opinion pieces. Um, and you know, if you're a columnist and you're expressing an opinion, it's very rare for Ipso to uphold a complaint. And much more likely to uphold a complaint. Uh, about a news report. Um, But uh, what was even more unusual about this ruling is that the complainant wasn't Meghan Markle. 
um, uh, uh, normally IPSA will only investigate a complaint if the injured party is the complainant or the person who claims to be the injured party is the complainant. But in this case, the complainant was the Fawcett Society, which is a feminist uh, lobby group, um, which claims to be acting on behalf of all women. Um, and um, uh, normally, Ipso wouldn't countenance a complaint from a lobby group claiming to be offended on, you know, a victim's behalf. Uh, but they did in this instance. Um, and that's a catastrophic crossing of a Rubicon, because it means that from now on, various political activist groups will deluge Ipso with complaints uh, about columns as well as news stories that they feel were unfair to the victim group they claim to be speaking on behalf of. And Ipsa won't be able to say, oh, we don't take complaints from groups like yours in future. They'll have to take those complaints now because they've set this precedent. So it's an absolute catastrophe and mm. has opened the floodgates to, you know, thousands of vexatious complaints. Um, and yeah. if you're, you know, if you're a contributor to an Ipso regulated publication as I am the spectator you know it's going to make my life miserable yeah what was funny about this Ipso markup thing was that um with with Clarkson was that they said it wasn't they said it was sexist which they upheld but they said it wasn't racist and they also rejected the idea that it was inaccurate so it was still accurate of Clarkson to say that she should be pelted with with feces (laughs) and (laughs) paraded down the sea that was accurate (laughs) (laughs) what that meant I, mean, I like that bit. I th- yeah, I think they meant it didn't contain any factually false information in those bits which conveyed information. Right. But yeah, I see. Uh, but all right, yeah. do you want to do you want to take a sharp left turn and do the French riots? This was going to be our next story. Pretty massive story. I'm sure you've all seen that the 17 year old kid was shot by the cop. He did now not like backing the cop necessarily, but he did drive away, and he was in a car that was registered in Poland. And, uh, and so some people have pointed that out. But obviously, you, sh- you shouldn't really be shooting people. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a horrible situation. The, there's been a GoFundMe started for the policeman, who, which has received a lot of donations, which Eric Zimmer has started in France. And that's quite controversial. I don't think he's quite a Daniel Penny. Daniel Penny in the Jordan Neely case is definitely the hero. Obviously, this cop is not really a hero. Whether he deserves to be completely condemned, whether, he, whether it was an accident, I don't know. But... Certainly the response has been insane and there's all this, uh, obviously, riots and looting kicking off and people can debate about what this is about. Some people say it's really just just immigration just boiling over and it's just inevitable conflicts of multiculturalism. Uh, Well, what do you think, Toby? Yeah, you you didn't quite put the complete case for the defence of the the officer um, who shot dead this 17-year-old boy. under French law, which was introduced after various suicide attacks, including the Bataclan and the person who drove the lorry on Bastille Day, and I think killed 85 people, lorry into a crowd, um, the, 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 there was a change of the law whereby if you stop someone in a car and they then try and flee the scene, um, because there's a risk, they might be a terrorist about to embark upon some kind of suicide mission which involves killing innocent people, you can shoot them. Um, And everyone condemned the law when it was passed and said this will inevitably result in the shooting of an innocent 
teenager by a trigger-happy flick, and that is indeed what appears to have happened. But nonetheless, whether he was acting unlawfully remains to be seen. Even though, of course, Macron immediately condemned him as, um, you know, as 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 a bad seed, you know, without knowing anything about it. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I think there are lots of interesting aspects of this, aren't there? I mean, um, there's a kind of uh, the, 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 it's been it's been sort of weaponized, jumped on by both the kind of both sides in the culture war. You know, the um, the populist right have said, "Well, here you go. This is the inevitable byproduct of." Um, mass immigration. And what we're seeing here is what Enoch Powell predicted all those years ago. And this is the future of Europe. Um, uh, It's going to happen in every European country in due course. Um, uh, 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 And it's why we need to address the problem of unrestricted mass immigration, why we need to think about how to assimilate our existing migrant populations better, why we need to uh, clamp down on the promotion of Muslim extremism and so on and so forth. So it's fueling, you know, it's fueling that narrative, the great replacement narrative on the populist right. And then the, the left, the left's argument is, well, these aren't, you know, um, uh, feckless criminals. Um, These are an oppressed people um, who are finally um, uh, revolting because they've been oppressed by the French state uh, for too long. They've been persecuted by the French police. It was the sort of same narrative we heard after the death of George Floyd. And and, and also, it's it, it's revenge. It's revenge for colonial exploitation. Um, they were... They were treated brutally and unjustly. Uh, Their land was stolen. They were brutally exploited. Uh, So they're just getting their revenge. This is is kind of uh, free form reparations for all the injustices inflicted on their ancestors by the colonialist French state. So there's a kind of left-wing narrative and a kind of right-wing narrative. But I think one of the things which um, uh, holds both those narratives below the waterline is that even though, you know, when you watch the pictures, um, uh, seemingly the vast majority of the rioting youths are of, you know, North African origin. Um, I'm sure that's not entirely the case. I mean, we saw this, people tried to whip up both narratives on the right and the left um, when we had quite serious riots across Britain in 2011. Um, And, uh, but what gave the lie to those narratives was plenty of the people participating in the looting, the rioting, the torching of cars, the stealing of cars, the joyriding, the ram raiding were white. And some of them from even quite affluent backgrounds. And it feels to me like it's, it's not symptomatic of um, uh, colonialism on the one hand or unrestricted migration on the other. It seems to be symptomatic of a more general collapse in uh, the norms of civilization. Uh, and that's, that was what was going on, it felt to me, in 2011 too. It was people no longer observing the norms of the social contract, no longer thinking it was wrong to kind of smash up people's houses, to drive cars into storefronts to help themselves to goods. And, and one th- another thing which sort of slightly undermines, I think, um, both narratives, um, or, or at least the, um, the avenging themselves on their colonial masters narrative, is that how is it, how is it avenging yourself on you know, um, the, the evil men behind the colonization of Algeria um, by destroying your own neighborhood, um, by destroying a crash 
um, uh, uh, by um, uh, lighting on fire buses that you know you need to take to work every day. Um, uh, it feels like it's it's all kind of a form of kind of self harm um, rather than revenge on the mm. enemy. Um, that they're, they're, they're burning. You know, for the most part, the rioters are burning their own neighborhoods, burning their own schools and transportation systems and destroying shops, which make it much less likely that any shops in future will open in their neighborhoods, which means they have to go much further to get their groceries and buy clothes. Um, so, you know, I think both of those narratives are wildly oversimplistic. And to me, it feels more like, you know, any excuse to riot um, by, you know, French teenagers, um, not all of North African origin. Um, many of them are second or third generation, you know, migrants. So, to all intents and purposes, are French. Um, and you know, when you, when you look at when you look at the riot, some of the footage of the rioters, you know, people talk about how unassimilated, you know, th- th- these communities are. You know, that they're, they're kind of complete. They're completely ghettoized, marginalized. There's been no, even though they're expected to assimilate. Um, you know, the, uh, for the most part, they haven't, and they've remained. They've absolutely kept faith with their traditions, um, uh, uh, their culture from you know the the, the places their parents or grandparents originated from. In some cases, they're even more zealous Muslims than their parents or their grandparents were. And there's all this kind of talk about you know how alienated and different, how other you know these youths are. And, uh, but but actually, when you see the footage of them rioting, they seem very French to me. They've got a kind of Gallic insouciance a kind of arrogance about their they, did you see the one of the guys standing in his car and helping himself to a beer a car obviously stolen and then embarking on this drawer but the way he drank the beer the kind of that he struck this kind of typically french kind of insouciant um kind of arrogant pose you know as he's dotting his beer in the middle of a riot it was it was just so french to me and the idea that they haven't absorbed many aspects of french culture and the truth is that actually it is a sort almost a tradition in france to kind of riot and revolt i mean they've had more revolutions in france since the french revolution i think than any other country in the world there's a revolution in france you know every 50 years or so there's a kind of change of of, of regime you know a republic falls and you know it's not as if we you know white people don't riot too. look at the uh gilet jaune you know um uh it's like it's very French uh, to smash things up, set cars on fire, object to you know the overbearing state, uh, attack the police, you know, erect barricades in in in, in roads. Um, you know, so in fact, I, I think the problem is that, that, that these youths are too assimilated. They're being too French. Um, if only they were a little bit more Muslim, perhaps they wouldn't be rioting. Okay, well, you've given me a lot to respond to there, Toby. And that that, that rant almost threatened your Nigel Farage rant uh, for length, but it was it was some good points, but. Firstly, of course, French people love to riot. We'll all concede that. Secondly, of course, riots are illogical, and there's lots of memes about that. You know, George Floyd died, so you've got to get a new TV, or you smash up your own neighborhood, obviously that being self-defeating. Just one thing I think you may have mischaracterized is the right-wing position on the revenge question. So the left-wing position is is that it's revenge, but the right-wing position is also to point out and expose that the left are admitting that this is all about revenge. It's not, so that's the distinction there. So if you, if you can follow this. So the left are emotionally tweeting and things like, well, you did this to Algeria and, you know, they do, they do it to Britain all the time. You did X to the world. Now we're doing this in France. It's the same. And then people more on the right will always tweet, oh, so it's just revenge. Oh, good to admit, good, good of you to admit. So the right wing position is to get the left to admit that it's actually all just revenge, whereas we're told by the establishment that it's 
multiculturalism or diversity is our strength and so on. And and the right wing position is actually to say, actually, it's just plain revenge and look at them, admit it. So it's not really, you see what I mean? That's, I don't know if you, if that was covered in what you said. Is that, is, is that fair? Yeah, I haven't heard too many people on the right say this is um, people of North African descent avenging themselves on the French state for the sins of colonialism. Um, don't they just see it as um, uh, symptomatic of the kind of lawlessness of um, you know certain communities? Um, uh, you need to uh, follow Carl Benjamin more. He, he's, he, he exposes okay. it all the time. They don't say they expose. It's a slight distinction. They don't say this is revenge. They expose. The left saying it's revenge, and they sort of go, "Look, they're saying it," which which defeats the whole sort of new labor, sort of globalist, you know, uh, pro-immigration stuff. That it's exposing that actually, no, it's just all about revenge. That's that's the sort of part of the right wing position. Okay, um, maybe so. Um, anyway, it's, it's just maybe a small point. There's another interesting point I thought between Carl Benjamin and Michael Tracy, the journalist who I think he's a journalist who said. Um, Tracy said, Mbappe, quote, my nationality is French, but my origins are Algerian and Cameroonian. Tracy quotes himself, my nationality is American, but my origins are Irish and Italian. If this causes you to erupt into spurring fits of rage and denial, it's possible you may be the one with the problem. And then Carl, he wasn't talking about Carl there, but Carl responds and says, Carl Benjamin, the problem is that in Europe, we don't have the American ethos towards nationhood. We are not a social contract nation. We are sentimental nations. There is no creed one can adopt to become an Italian or a Spaniard. These are ethnic identities one inherits. And I think that debate certainly has showed the difference between America and, and Europe. America is very much, you arrive and you say, I'm Asian American, I'm African American, whatever it is, and you're both, or you say, I'm Irish if you're Joe Biden. But we don't really have that in, in Europe or in, in Britain where we, we sort of, you, you assimilate or you don't. I don't think, I don't, I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's the same well, like pride that I Americans that, have in that. Yeah. I, could be wrong. I don't think that's, I don't know enough about Italy, for instance, or really France, to know whether that's true. I mean, I, I grasp the point, but I don't think it's true of Britain. Um, uh, Rakib Khan wrote quite a good piece um, a couple of days ago, pointing out that when surveyed, um, many non-white Britons um, uh, turn out to be very patriotic um, and do see themselves as British first and a member of, you know, an ethnic non-white group second um, and they don't see a conflict there and they do understand you know what Britishness is and they appreciate you know uh, the same things we appreciate about Britain um, so I think that's slightly unfair I think it is possible I mean, America has obviously you know um, uh, done this very successfully although it has a bigger problem with kind of racism race riots racial conflict than we do um, but as you say people because they because it's a you know a, a nation of migrants, um, uh, almost everyone has to kind of embrace a common identity when they arrive, if it's if it's going to kind of survive as a nation, whereas it's very different in European countries. But I don't think it's true that um, uh, you can't uh, that you can't have um, a cohesive national identity which is also multi-ethnic. I don't think it's inextricably linked to you know an ethnic group which have been in that particular region for hundreds of years. Uh, and I think this is a not, distinction. Well, is Dan, saying Dan, that? I'm not sure I'm saying that, but I'm because I'm saying they, they can of course be absolutely British and say I'm English or I'm British. I, I'm actually saying perhaps the opposite. America they'll keep the prefix all the time Asian American or, or African American in a way that British and English people won't actually. But so it's kind of like. 
they, they retain that in America because they're always aware that it's a nation of immigrants, but here you can actually assimilate more if you want to, maybe even more than America. I don't know. I need to think about it more, but go on. Okay. No, I, I think um, I think there's a, a, a critical distinction to be made between um, a multi-ethnic society and a multicultural society. Um, and where where Britain has gone slightly wrong, I think, is in imagining you can't have a successful multi-ethnic society unless you're also a multicultural society. And it's multiculturalism, the attempt to combine different cultures, um, uh, which are in some cases, you know, mutually antagonistic um, under a kind of common umbrella of national identity that that's the tricky and probably um, unsuccessful project. But I do think it's possible to have a cohesive common identity in a multi-ethnic society. And I think for the most part, that's what Britain is. Hmm. And that's why we don't have the same problems France has. Um, and, and, fr- and France, curiously, um, uh, 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 generally expects... Uh, migrant populations, migrant communities to assimilate and become French, um, whereas we're less insistent about it. We're more um, casual and polite and British about it. But it seems to have been in part France's insistence that, you know, you can't wear the hijab in public um, and everyone has to go to secular schools uh, that has left, you know, these communities um, feeling quite culturally isolated and alienated from the French state. So our approach, for all its shortcomings, seems to be a more sensible one to the French approach, given, you know, that French is now in an almost permanent, France is now in an almost permanent state of civil war. Could be that. Or it could also be that we just don't shoot people, our police don't shoot people. Or it could be that it's about to come to Britain and it just hasn't yet. Or, or well, you could that, be That's right. an interesting point. That's an interesting point, isn't it? So the murder... Or the death of George Floyd, um, you know, more, in a completely different country, not quite on the other side of the world, but almost triggered triggered a kind of uprising across the Western world. So there were riots, protests, which eventually descended into riots, not in every case, but in many, in you know, in Seoul, in Manchester, in um, in Paris, um, in Rome. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it became a kind of universal thing to protest about. People in the Isle of Man um, were were standing in front of police officers saying, hands up, don't shoot, when, you know, no one has ever been shot by a police officer in the Isle of Man. It was as though there was something universal. It resonated with everyone because it had happened in America. It was as though there was no other culture. American culture has become the kind of universal culture, certainly of the woke left and the young woke left. Whereas something happening in France, you know, um, uh, just as, you know, unjust, um, uh, you know, the shooting dead of a 17 year old who in some ways is a kind of, uh, you know, a, a better fit for a martyr than George Floyd, who was after all a career criminal who'd assaulted women and so forth. Um, but it hasn't produced anything like the same resonance. I mean, why haven't there been copycat riots? I mean, maybe there will be this weekend, but let's hope not. But there haven't been any copycat riots as far as I know in Britain um, or anywhere else. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think the obvious reason, well, there's two reasons. One, one that you haven't mentioned, the, the, the one you have mentioned that America becomes the global culture. We all have to follow America. It's exported rapidly, especially via the internet now. So we all take on American culture and because it's the most powerful country for now still. So those are, that's, those are very clear reasons. But also, isn't it also that the, in, in the country or the set of countries that's the United States, 
the racial tension question is particularly vivid because of slavery. And so when a, a white policeman kills a, a black person, even if he's a career criminal who's massively high on drugs with incredibly high blood pressure, it kicks off so badly that that resonates everywhere. Whereas France doesn't have quite, despite their current problems, doesn't have the history of, of, of black versus white problems stemming from slavery. So the original, the original explosion isn't doesn't doesn't resonate as widely because it wasn't mm. as big. Is that also arguable? Yeah, that's arguable. Um, and I guess there's another point too, which is that um, the death of George Floyd um, seemed more evil. You know. Um, uh, more, more, more malicious. Yeah, I mean, can't the, the, breathe the, the, and all that stuff. Can't breathe and uh, uh, kneeling on his neck, not moving. It was kind of like a slow, horrible death. Whereas, yeah, I'm not saying it was a nice death to be shot by by a police officer, but but it, it didn't have the it it wasn't going to kind of upset people and enrage them to quite the same extent, or at least not if you're not French. Um, as yeah, and we don't have the Floyd. same close up video and audio and all that. We we could watch That's the whole true. George Floyd in like a movie or a, a docu mm. a reality show or something. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, all pretty bleak. No, I'll do an ad. So um, we've got um, one of our most loyal sponsors is back. It's Thorholt. Uh, perhaps you fear speak public speaking or experience other mental blocks that have held you back. Thor is offering coaching sessions in exchange for the opportunity to participate in his new podcast series, Thor's Hippie Hut. Thor's Hippie Hut podcast is a place of freedom and warm welcome, a place to be coached through your current situation. Thor was actually born to hippie parents in the original real life hippie hut, a 10 by 12 basic wooden construction without power or plumbing in 1973 on a tiny Scottish island. The hut, now with power and plumbing, is still in use on his family croft, welcoming many volunteers and visitors to the island for over 50 years. Join Thor's Hippie Hut Coaching and experience a warm welcome and a breakthrough in your life, career or business. These coaching sessions are free of charge and hosted by Thor on Zoom with the option, no pressure, of becoming part of the podcast. To find out more, you can contact Thor via linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt and ask about the Hippie Hut. That's linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt. All right, thanks for that, Thor. Shall we quickly rattle through our three uh, women-based stories, Toby, that we had different <laughs> ideas about what to call it? There's a lot of conflict, so I was going to call it bitch fight. You said that was too sexist and then suggested something equally sexist, really. That you said token female section or something. <laughs> we, should probably got, we should probably got all of that. <laughs> yeah, let's just, let's just call it uh, um, uh, women. Yeah, this is the women section, guys. So... Because what's happened this week, we've had three big stories. So Jess Phillips uh, had a what I, what, what I would never describe as a bitch fight with um, Catherine Burblesing, a uh, famous head teacher of the Michaela Community Free School. And it all stemmed back to this ridiculous thing where Catherine posted a picture of Tina Turner, but she unfortunately chose one or she said it was a gif and there was like multiple pictures or something. I didn't quite understand that, but it ended up, whatever happened with a picture of Tina and Ike Turner and sort of saying, you know, an iconic voice or something. And and, and people and, and people thought it was like, why is she posting the picture of Ike? And it's obviously just a sort of innocent mistake. But the absurd position from people that hate Catherine and hate our side was was that she was promoting domestic violence, which is just such an insane reading 
that she would suddenly go, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to put a tweet out promoting domestic violence to celebrate Tina Turner. I mean, you have to be completely insane or incredibly disingenuous to believe that. But that was the view of Jess Phillips, who said, uh, she shared the tweet and said, hold the line, stay with me. Domestic abuse is never okay, and we will defeat those who prop up the status quo. I repeat, hold the line, stay with me, we will win. Absolutely idiotic grandstanding. And Burblesing has hit back and accused her of racism, which is an interesting take, unconscious bias, because she's saying, you know, she expects me to have certain views as a woman of color, and I don't have them. And I think this is sort of reasonably clever in that it's throwing their language back at them. But is it, it, but is it really believable, Toby, or is it just that Jess Phillips is a bit of an idiot? Well, Jess Phillips is clearly a bit of an idiot. Um, and, um, and I think she, she went further. She also said that um, she was concerned that the head teacher of a school uh, should be promoting domestic violence and urged um, off, Ofsted to um, carry out an emergency inspection of the school because she had safeguarding concerns about the children in the school. Turned out Ofsted had, in fact, just completed an inspection. Um, and for the second time, the school has been found to be outstanding by Ofsted. Yeah. But um, that, that was quite, a, that was quite a, an inflammatory thing of Jess Phillips to say, because I think she is the shadow minister for, amongst other things, safeguarding. Um, so it felt like she was abusing her position of authority uh, on the Labour front bench to, um, you know, uh, sick her followers on Catherine Burble Singh for completely spurious, trumped-up reasons. She must have known, as you say, it was a completely innocent mistake. My reason for not wanting to describe this particular section as uh, bitch fights is because that implies a neutrality as between these two antagonists, and I am 100% on Catherine's side, 0% on Jess Phillips's side. Um, and, um, yeah, it was... Uh, uh, so I, is there any... Is is there, any, is there any merit in um, Catherine's claim that um, there's something racist about Jess Phillips's hatred of her, um, um, the, the, the way in which she led a pile on for completely spurious reasons, uh, because Catherine is someone who uh, doesn't hold the opinions that lefties think all people of colour should hold? I think there is something in that. I mean, we've seen it before, haven't we, with people condemning Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid and Suella Braverman for, you know, betraying uh, people of the same ethnicity uh, for being coconuts. You know, I think there is an element of racism in that to expect people based on the color of their skin to hold particular woke views and then to condemn them in a vituperative way, um, uh, even descending to name calling because they don't. That does feel a bit racist to me. And I think it was part of what prompted Nottingham University to withdraw its offer of an honorary degree to Tony Sewell, who led the CRED Commission, um, which concluded that Britain wasn't institutionally or system, system, systemically racist. Um, uh, again, um, there was this kind of eruption of rage on the uh, identitarian left, and I think partly fueled by the fact that he was a black man who didn't take the view that they, should, they thought all black people should. Um, you know, but it's a kind of, it's sort of a denial of agency to black people, expecting them to just become kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, obsequious clients of the woke left and and behave like victims, you know, uh, and grievance mongers at all time. And if they don't, then they're not really properly black. It does feel a bit racist. Hmm. Yeah, I certainly observed that phenomenon. And I've actually, I've seen it with Suella Bravman 
definitely, and several other people, and I've seen it very frequently with the left. Of course it exists. I didn't particularly see it in this case. I think it's a reasonably effective potential line of attack because it, you know, that is a, a damning accusation against any lefty. If you just say racism, it's like, oh, you know, or unconscious bias or any of that, any of their buzzwords. But I, I personally don't think it was an example of that. But I do think it was an example of Jess Phillips being absolutely awful. And like you, I'm 100% on Catherine's side. Should we move on just because we have so many stories to this Maya Forstater one, which is a rare bit yeah. of good news where she won, she's been awarded £100,000 for basically believing in biological reality and, uh, and, and tweeting as such. And it's annoying to her because when I put tweets up about this, I just get a lot of abuse. But but Maya got £100,000. But, of course, she's been through a lot. This came from the Centre for Global Development, who ditched her contract. They didn't renew her visiting fellowship. They removed her from the website. And this was all because she just, you know, of her views, basically, things things such as tweeting that a man's internal feeling that he's a woman has no basis in material reality. Uh so, you know, it was stuff like that. We all know the kind of stuff Maya puts out. So it's great that she's won. And they've and, and she, yeah, she's won 91500 for loss of earnings, injuries to feelings, and aggravated damages, and 14900 of interest. So is this a, a rare win to celebrate, Toby? Yes, it is, I think. I mean, it's, um, it's the completion of um, a fight that, you know, uh, Maya Forstadt has been engaged in now for some time. Um, and uh, so initially, when she um, took her employer to the employment tribunal for belief discrimination, I mean, she claimed I was discriminated against by my employer because I happen to believe that sex is binary and immutable and people can't change sex. Um, and um, so uh, the court initially ruled that she didn't have a discrimination claim. This was the employment tribunal because her belief in the biological reality of sex was um, unacceptable in a democratic society. So the, the, the panel that, 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 that came up with that completely captured. Uh, and incidentally, companies like Stonewall do actually are paid to train you know, um, uh, the courts and tribunal service in this country. So not surprising that they would be completely captured. Um, but um, that was a shocking, shocking decision to say that a belief held probably by 99.9% of the British population um, uh, was unacceptable in a democratic society. So quite rightly, Maya um, appealed that judgment in the Employment Appeals Tribunal. And the in the, e, the EAT um, uh said, no, um, we think that is a belief which is acceptable in a democratic society. But they were they were neutral on the issue of whether having decided that that was in fact a protected belief and it was unlawful to discriminate against people for holding that belief, whether in this case her employer had discriminated against her. So there was going to be a third hearing in which the case went back to the employment tribunal um, and... Uh, the company was going to argue, uh, well, it may be a protected belief, uh, but we weren't discriminating against her for manifesting that belief. We thought that what she was saying about other employees refusing to use their preferred gender pronouns, that that was a form of discrimination and harassment um, and their rights effectively trumped hers. That would have been the argument that they had to make. Um, but in the end, they didn't. They, they realized that they weren't going to get very far making that argument or it was risky. Um, and so instead they settled, um, which is effectively an admission of defeat. So yeah, I think it is important. It's effectively saying 
um, it's 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 underlining the verdict in the employment appeal appeal tribunal, which is that gender critical beliefs are protected under the Equality Act, and if someone expresses them in the workplace or refuses to say something which is contrary to those beliefs, i.e. refuses to use the preferred gender pronouns of other employees, then in all likelihood, they, you know, if you discriminated against them, um, that would be unlawful. Um, so I think it's, it is an important victory. All right. Brilliantly comprehensive there from Toby. I can't really add to that. This is why we have him on the podcast. Yes, all the reviews are about how I'm great, but let's face it, if it was just me, it would just be banter and ill-thought-out reactionary <laughs> views without Toby's incredible level of, uh, of, of detail and grasp of the issues. So I think I, let's move on to one that's more my area, and I can squeeze in a top G reference. <laughs> it's Caitlin Moran, who put out this, uh, well, initially there was a video on Twitter going viral, her and Lorraine waffling on about men with a series of sort of idiotic statements. One was that men are like dogs, which was fascinating. And um, they eventually said they, of course, got around to Andrew Tate. And just as you thought they were going to make a good point and say, yeah, and young men have gone into Andrew Tate, and we need to listen to that and think, what are we doing wrong? Instead, they went, and of course, he's radicalizing young men, Caitlin said. And Lorraine came, came in, yeah, it's totally toxic. It's like, oh, you were so close to not being complete cliched idiots. But she then did a piece in The Guardian. And of course, she's, she's flogging a new book about men. She's picked up on this vibe that, you know, men's a thing. She's looked at Tate, she's gone, oh, men is a thing now, being nice to men. I've seen a few similar pieces from the sort of broadsheets on this. So she's come out with this uh, long piece about men here. And it, it's, it's pretty funny. She, she has loads of accounts of similar Guardian type people that she knows. And my favorite one was an account of uh, her, a, fifth, a friend's 15 year old nephew who used to be so lovely, was now, along with thousands of other teenage boys, a massive fan of Andrew Tate. He, the nephew, not Tate had ruined Christmas lunch by quoting Tate and then making Tate's hand signal, <laughs> which basically means shut up, woman, whenever my niece was talking. She eventually burst into tears and went to bed before pudding. And the, the mother has said, I don't understand. His parents are so nice. They read The Guardian. I don't understand why they have a son like this. <laughs> we couldn't make this up if we did the most ridiculous parody of the, of the, of the Guardian people. It's like, I love the idea of this kid. Ruining Christmas lunch with Tate gestures. That's just so funny. <laughs> top G infiltrating your Christmas. I mean, that is just top level trolling. I, I admire, I give this kid a, 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 a sort of award for that. Um, <laughs> what have you followed any of this, Toby? What do you make of it? Well, I did, I read, I did, I read her, Caitlin's piece in um, The Guardian from start to finish. Um, I've got a sort of, um, I, I used to know Caitlin Moran. Um, uh, in in the um, mid nineties, so she was a contributor to the Modern Review, um, and um, and I thought you know, an obviously very very talented, precocious young woman, uh, a good writer, um, lots of opinions, um, feisty. Um, maybe I sound like a typical patronising man, um, but. And we were good, well, we were not good friends, but we were very friendly. And we hung out a few times and spent some fun evenings together. And she was more of a friend of Julie Birchall's than mine, but nonetheless. Uh, and then she, then she completely turned on me um, and just decided I was a kind of reprehensible, kind of um, horrible, toxic white male. Um, and, um, and it was, I didn't understand it. Um, at one point I was on um, Late Review with Germaine Greer. And um, she said, it's glorious watching Germaine eviscerate the wretched, horrible, homunculus, 
Churchill lookalike Toby Young. Um, uh, 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 I just can't wait for the bit. She pulls out her sword and rams it through his guts, cutting him in half and leaving his entrails on the floor. It was kind of like the most unbelievably, the sort of thing that you could get cancelled, you know, from Twitter for saying now. And it, it amused me that a few years after that, she kind of, she became famous for kind of having, let's be nice on Twitter day. That was her great innovation. If she weren't allowed, there was so much toxicity and aggression and people being mean on Twitter. You know, she wanted to do something about this. So we had kind of be nice to everyone on Twitter then. I'm thinking, after what you said to me, you're not a, great you know uh poster child for be nice to people on twitter day so i've i've obviously I, i've sort of um i don't i don't um, it's good that you have not loved it there i've totally let it go by now of course as you can tell <laughs> listen to me um but uh, uh but uh, yeah i mean i i did think in her guardian i didn't hear her interview with lorraine but in the guardian piece she did at one point as you say um begin to sound almost sensible um uh the the reason men are gravitating towards people like Andrew Tate is because there's a vacuum uh, when it comes to alternative male role models. Feminists have for too long demonized men. Boys have been taught that to be masculine is to be toxic. Um, and uh, we need to give men a way to be. You know, um, we, we, they don't have, if they can't see it, they can't be it. Um, for too long, we've neglected men. And that's why uh, and she talked actually about there was another kind of heroic sounding young man in her piece, which was she organized a Zoom call in which she was speaking to young men, evidently when she was thinking about maybe writing this book. Um, and one of them started rattling off these kind of statistics to her, like, you know, the male, the fact that men are much more likely to commit suicide, much more likely to end up in the criminal justice system, much more likely to end up killed in the workplace, much more likely to, much less likely to go to university, much more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression, et cetera, et cetera. And she fact she didn't have an answer to this. And she, she realized then that, you know, feminists have been neglecting young men and boys uh, or men and boys um, and that, that they had now having having done so much good for each other you know having created such a wonderful vibrant joyful community it was time that they tried to pass on some of the lessons they'd learned some of the good they'd done to these poor suffering beleaguered men and boys and he sort of thought well this sounds sort of you know you know not entirely horrible um, seems to be coming from quite a good place but then the conclusion is how are we going to help men? Well, we're going to help them to become more like women. Um, we're going to encourage them to share their feelings. Just as we talk about our vaginas all the time, we're going to encourage them to talk about their penises. Because let's face it, there must be lots of men out there with tiny penises. They shouldn't be ashamed of that fact. We're going to create a safe space in which men can come forward and confess to having mushroom penises. <laughs> it's like button penises. It's like, yeah, if, if Caitlin Moran was running the therapy, the group therapy session, uh, I'm not sure I'd, 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 I'd have enough trust, you know, if I did have a micro penis to kind of leap forward and say, my problem is I've got a micro penis and I'm just relieved <laughs> I can talk about it to such sympathetic, compassionate people like you, Caitlin. I mean, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the sol- I think she, our, uh, she, enemies don't the- clip that out of context. No, <laughs> uh, yeah, that could be that could be quite damaging. Um, but um, yeah, so I thought there was something in the diagnosis, but the solution, hopeless. Absolutely, and that is exactly my point. And and I I missed the penis bit. I must say it's quite a long article, and we had to just read it uh, before headliners when we have twenty stories. But but the um, the part you, you you nailed there was this. The problem is Toby. She, she asks a load of men. 
and gets responses from them. But they're all her kind of men. They're all people who follow yeah. Caitlin Moran and, and like The yeah. Guardian. So one of them said, we have very few avenues to emotionally express ourselves. We're supposed to fit this stereotype of being tough and only wanting to touch if it comes with sex. But I want a hug and head pats, damn it. Head pats? Who are these weird cut freaks? Yeah, we don't, we, exactly. We don't need to be like women. We don't need to emotionally express ourselves. And this idea that men don't talk is nonsense. We, and this idea, the, the really funny part of the clip as well, the actual Twitter clip with the rain is, is they're sort of saying, oh, they just banter. All they do is banter. It's like, yeah, banter has a function. You know, banter's great. I mean, I said, a, I did a brilliant tweet about this a while ago. I wish I could remember it verbatim, but it was about calling my dad on Father's Day, which was true. And I said, um, great, great to catch up with my dad. Uh, I know every Man United player that's ever been accused of rape. I know what's happening in the cricket. And I know that um, his theory about why the king of, if the king of Germany hadn't died young, Frederick III, we could have potentially averted World War One. No idea how my dad is. Oh, <laughs> you know, it was like, and that is like, that's like a classic conversation with your dad or my dad. Anyway, it's like sports, bit of history, no feelings at all, <laughs> nothing like that. But that's men. And why do we have to change men or to be well, like women, as you say? That's the disgusting. But but but, but, you're, but you're, you're conceding. I think too much to her. Um, you're acknowledging that there is this kind of difference between men and women at present, and um, men are reluctant to emote and speak sincerely to each other about their feelings and pat each other on the head. Surely the opposite is true. Men are far too feminized these days. They do nothing but emote and talk about their feelings. The stiff upper lip is now a thing of the past. Um, if only, you know. Andy Murray can't win a tennis match without bursting into tears. I mean, if only men were more like your dad. But the problem is not enough men are like that these days. That, that'll that cure their problems, not not encouraging them to right. be more like women. I mean, and I think the... Uh, the um, That's what I'm saying. I'm talking become, about the ideal. Right, yeah. I mean, it's become such a cliche, though, to say that men can't express their feelings. Uh, the other the other thing wrong with, with the kind of um, premise of her kind of uh, 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 solution is that she said that, you know, Feminists have created this wonderful, wonderful community. Um, you know, we get on like a house on fire. We help each other. We're always kind of uh, um, coming to each other's aid if one of us gets into trouble. We just model what it is to create a kind of gender-based community. But you know, I mean, that that's just nonsense. You know, female friendship groups are constantly fighting and squabbling. Um, uh, you know, uh, in my experience, groups of women, which don't include men, it's like putting a bunch of ferrets in a sack, you know, and then putting it in boiling water. You know, I mean, uh, the idea that they all get along famously like a house on fire, which we're always aggressive and fighting each other and we're always lonely because we can never find any solidarity with each other. I mean, it's just absolute nonsense. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, but I mean, uh, my theory as to, probably not just my theory as to why, you know, lesbians find it difficult to kind of sustain relationships i mean this is this is one of the things you hear lesbians complain about you know that 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 unlike gay men who can enter into these lifelong same-sex relationships lesbians change partners every 10 minutes it's because you know women struggle to get on with each other <laughs> um the idea that, that 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 you know they can model what it is to be a kind of agreeable lovely joyous mutually appreciative and supportive community to men it's just rubbish <laughs> absolutely toby you're absolutely right i mean here i am just agreeing this is gonna be the least balanced <laughs> podcast ever of course i mean women hate women everyone knows that they're ultra bitchy and competitive whereas men can genuinely be get on with each other even if we don't speak to each other for months we can pick it up and just say what's how, how are you doing call each other gay and we move on and it's great 
And men, here's another claim, are the only people out of men and women can, who are capable of unconditional love. This is another one of my beliefs. This idea that sort of men are sort of not loving. Men can actually love unconditionally and, and women can't. And they'll, they'll just move on and, and upgrade if they can or if you died or something. Uh, Ten minutes later, well, what about, wait, wait, that, a, that may be a little... Don't they love their children unconditionally? Maybe not their oh, partners. I mean, oh, that, their yes, children. Yes, that's interesting. Good point. Good point. You're absolutely right. I thought you were going to come back and say that was sexy. Like, hang on, hang on a minute, Nick. They love their children. <laughs> You're right about how they treat men. Absolutely ruthless. Uh, but hang on. And by the way, while I'm getting myself in trouble, Caitlin shouldn't get away with this. She said, I have, I admit... She said, I've certainly said uh, men a lot. And I have, I admit, said typical straight white men on a number of occasions. And she later says that white men seem like it was a group it was okay to beat up, up on a bit. It's like, okay, why are you so sexist, racist, and straightist? Like, what a shocking thing to admit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah I've, I've had a crop of black women, obvs, because they're awful. You know, that's like, you, you imagine writing that. <laughs> shocking that she even thinks that's acceptable. But she thinks it's like funny, like, oh, yeah, I've been a bit racist. <laughs> F you, Caitlin. I know she's your former friend. Oh, no, she hates you now. Um, but <laughs> one more thing, Toby, and you can delete this if I'm not allowed to say this, but I was at your house. And um, when I mentioned the top G, I have to say, the women didn't love it when I said that the top G, Andrew Tate, follows me and he's had some DMs with me. But there were some very successful businessmen there and they did perk up and like that. But it's funny, isn't it? That, 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 that I don't know, that Tate just seems to be still beyond the pale for is women. That, is that, is, is that the first time your your defence, uh, your enthusiasm, your evangelism on behalf of the top G hasn't gone down well with women? Surely not. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's happened a lot, to be fair. Uh, but I can't remember because I was going to say that point about five points ago, so I can't remember what it pertained to. But I think it's this, yeah, I think it's this fact that, yeah, I think that's what it is. This is my point, is that even though women claim to be like, give men a hearing and all this, if you still say anything positive about Tate, it's a, then it's over. It's like, that's what they did on Lorraine and Caitlin. It's like, no, he's toxic. Kids need to be re-educated. He's radicalizing them. So they can't go, why can't they go that step further and just say, well, he must be onto something. What have we done wrong? Why we need to improve? Or, or is that what they're saying? It doesn't sound like they quite are. And no, I think they're saying um, that Andrew is a symptom of the problem we have to address, but we're partly responsible for that problem. But I don't think they're, extending much um leeway to him right and then they then they think his solutions are completely wrong whereas a lot of his solutions are about hard work and discipline and so on and their solutions are just crying more so it's, it's absolute bollocks <laughs> it's never going to work and stop telling us how to be men women because you have no clue what you're talking about um so yeah toby yeah, it's, you, you, you can maybe, maybe one way to um test the you know these hypotheses about you know what men need is you, you t- take two islands side by side somewhere in the south seas and you have the kind of an island led by Ketlin moran who who kind of um re-educates a group of men the men are kind of to control for, for, for the sake of the experiment the the two groups of men are broadly identical same age you know similar strength um similar attitudes same political views so a, a, an identical group of young men you give you know 
a hundred to Caitlin and you give a hundred to Andrew Tate and 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 you let Caitlin re-educate them, tell that they can confess if they've got below average sized penises, they can cry a lot, they can share their feelings, they can they can become more like women, whereas Tate trains them all up, you know, as cage fighters and um and tells them his philosophy of, you know, hard work and self-discipline. And uh, and then you see which as Ireland is happier, but probably before you could get to that point where you kind of complete the experiment, Tate Island would have invaded Caitlin Island and enslaved the kind of Caitlin's girly men. Yeah, yes. good point. That's a great reality show. You could call it Tate versus the haters or Tate versus the hoes or something like that. Tate. It's Tate. Huh? Tate v. Hate. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And that- Tate trains up. Exactly. We sent 100 people to Tate's camp. <laughs> And 100 to Caitlin's cap. We caught up with them a week later. Yeah, that would be a great experiment to see if Andrew's methods really work. Then he's just there going, get up, get up off the floor. This is sparring. He's, just, he's punching them all and they're all bleeding. And then in Caitlin's one, they're all like sharing they're all and going pa- patting each other on the head. Yeah. Talking about their micro penises. <laughs> Caitlin's group are admitting that they have micro penises. <laughs> where we go over to Andrew Tate now, where everyone, they're also crying, but it's because he's hit them really hard in the ribs. <laughs> <laughs> this would be a great show. Um, last thing on women, two more things Caitlin, just to get myself Ca- in real. Caitlin, oh, so Caitlin has decided to ban meat on her island, whereas Tate has said they can only eat meat uh, after six <laughs> and weeks. only if they hunt it and catch it themselves. <laughs> yeah, after six weeks, uh, something appears to have happened to the men on Caitlin Island. They appear to have shrunk and <laughs> they've become rather small, <laughs> whereas they've grown quite a lot. On, One of on, them's breastfeeding. <laughs> one of them's decided to transition yeah <laughs> yeah that's amazing um, tate has killed the weakest six <laughs> what a show and, hope I hope tate it, survives this re- latest thing re- to do it Go the on. remaining the remaining 94 have eaten them yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> send in your suggestions for more ideas for that show or a good title um Red pill women, Toby, here's a controversial thing. In my experience, it's with very rare exceptions, some of my most trad con friends are very rare exceptions, but with rare exceptions, the most red pill sounding woman who's like, oh yeah, men and boys are really under, under, you know, under attack and Tate's good and all this. It, still, when you scratch the surface, if something goes wrong, they'll suddenly default to feminism and say like, oh, stop mansplaining to me. Or they may not use that word and they'll, they'll say that men are patronizing them or something like that. They'll suddenly have a pop at men so you've got to be very careful with that. And the other thing I'll say in this increasingly misogynist section, last point, male <laughs> That's what we should call it, the misogynist so- section. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome Misogyny to misogynist hour. corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Misogynist it's hour. It's funny because we've yeah. both got books behind us, but they're just all misogynist <laughs> books. Uh, I was reading Schopenhauer today on women, and he says they're awful. Yeah, um, Schopenhauer is the ultimate misogynist, by the way. But... If you want to know, a little tip for the ladies out there, male banter, picture how bad you think it is and how misogynist it is and how sort of dark and and outrageous it is. And it's 10 to 100 times worse. This is my little tip for women. They're they're never ready when I try and tell them this. But the caveat is we don't really mean it. But you know how women think like male banter is like toxic. Mm. It's so much more toxic than they even think. But it's also (laughs) just a joke. Is that fair? Yes. Uh, Yeah, that's fair. It's definitely worse than they, can, they could possibly imagine. Yeah, you probably shouldn't tell them. No. <laughs> <laughs> but on the flip side, probably the stuff women talk about together is horrifically worse than we would imagine and just like brutally humiliating about all men. Yeah, I expect so. Yeah. Yeah, probably. All right, we've solved that. Um, 
Let's do our second advert, which today comes from the Stack Assistant. Two weeks ago in mid-June, the UK passed Tax Freedom Day. This is when the average Brit has earned their tax obligations for the calendar year and from then on takes their money home. This year, that average Brit will work 120 days for the state and just 140 for themselves. And if one still believes the public will pay off the government's deficit spending, then the break-even point shifts to mid-August, leaving under a third of a year's earnings to take home. Both these dates are the latest on record, as the government is fleecing us for ever more money, 46% of national income right into the teeth of the cost of lockdown crisis. Meanwhile, across the pond, the US solved its credit card limit by voting to abolish it entirely and has promptly racked up one trillion more debt in the very next month. But it, is it ever morally right that some must work for money that others can print for free? Bitcoin fixes this. At the Stack Assistant, we offer free advice to help you stack your first sats, as the subunits of Bitcoin are called, and secure your stack into self-custody. So it's the Stack Assistant at pm.me. The Stack Assistant at pm.me. So now let's go to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here as ever with Dr. Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic, and we have some very interesting stories and as quite often, quite disturbing stories. The first one is Pfizer vaccine batches in the EU were placebos, say scientists. And it says here, scientists have uncovered startling evidence that a substantial portion of the batches of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine deployed in the European Union may in fact have consisted of placebos and that the German regulator knew this and did not subject them to quality control testing. That seems quite important to me, Will. Yeah, hugely important. Major story, this. Uh, good scoop from Robert Kogon. Uh, as uh, first publicised on The Daily Skeptic last week and uh, now 120,000 hits and counting. So really uh, a real, really viral story uh, for us. And no surprise because uh, absolutely huge. Uh, as as you say, these scientists, these uh, these Danish scientists have found that they they looked into it and they found that a substantial number of the batches of the Pfizer vaccine that were released in the EU and, and in particular in uh, in Denmark, which is where they were specifically looking, they found that they didn't register. Nobody reported any adverse events, any side effects from these batches. I mean, these are, these are batches of thousands and thousands of doses, right? Um, and yet no one, or almost no one, uh, for these uh, uh, 20 or so batches reported any side effects. Now, now that in itself has been known for a while, and it's uh, it's quite strange. You can see uh, on the story, this chart showing uh, the v- batches and uh, and their rate of adverse event reporting, so how many side effects they had. And it's quite clear that there's some, which these researchers classify as blue, um, as colour them blue, have very, very high numbers of adverse events. This is called the bad batch or hot lot phenomenon. No one's entirely sure exactly what causes it, but it's definitely a thing. And so there's those. And then there's a lot of batches in the middle that just have a what you might call a normal, still uh, alarmingly uh, high compared to normal uh, vaccines, but still a normal for COVID vaccines level of number of of adverse effects, side effects. Uh, but then you have these ones coloured yellow, uh, which uh, then they're coloured yellow by the researchers, I should say, not by the regulator. Um, but they're coloured yellow because they have, they all lie on the x-axis. That means they have basically zero or near zero uh, at rate of adverse events. Uh, now that in itself is um, is strange, but you know there might be an, an innocent explanation. But the reason the scientists came out saying came out saying these look like placebos is because then what they did is they looked at they, they looked at which of these batches had been tested, uh, quality control tested, 
by uh, the German regulator, which does it on behalf of the EU, uh, the PEI it's called, uh, to see which ones had been tested, quality control tested. And incredibly, they found that the, the, those who got zero adverse side effects uh, were, had almost all of them, I think only one of them, had, had been subject to quality control testing, whereas all the other batches, from the, the ones with higher rates of adverse events, Almost all of those had been quality control tested. So there was this. So, so this was just this was mind-boggling. I mean, that 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 can't happen by chance. Uh, there must be a reason why all of the ones, the the placebo batches, as they called them, uh, the, the the batches with uh, zero ad or very nearly zero adverse events, had, were not test quality control tested, and all the rest were, or almost all the rest were. So, so, so they put it out there saying that the re- the main reason they can think of that that would happen is if the German, if the regulator already knew uh, that they were placebos and therefore not worth uh, quality control testing. I mean, that is a remarkable conclusion um, for these scientists uh, to come to and go public with. I mean, these are these aren't these aren't quacks or crackpots. You know, these are uh, mainstream scientists at universities uh, who've uh, who've come out and said this. We have um, who do we have? We have. Excuse me, with my um, pronunciation of names, we have um, a Dr. Uh, Gerald Diker, the professor of organic organic chemistry at the Ruhr University, Bochum. Bochum, um, uh, you can have a go at pronouncing that if you like, Nick. And Jörg Matisik, a professor of analytical chemistry at the University of Leipzig. Um, and so uh, these are not uh, Leipzig. I can do that one because Leipzig, it's a football sorry, team. Leipzig. My, apologies for my for my uh, appalling foreign pronunciation. And they've come out and said this. Now, other people have have followed up on this and pointed out that these batches were actually released overseas as well, and that ad- more adverse events were reported in other countries. Although, of course, not all adverse events that are reported are necessarily actual side effects. As we know, they can just be uh, coincidences. So th- th- this has been questioned, and it's been questioned by uh, people in the sceptical community. Even so, the the central mystery still remains, um, which is why these zero adverse events, these placebo, so-called placebo batches, line up almost perfectly with the the batches that the German regulator uh, did not do a quality control testing on. So, you know, if if we hear any more, if anyone, if any more is revealed about the reasons for this, um, then uh, we will let you know. All right. Very worrying. And I've never heard hot lot before. It sounds like one of those uh, boy bands Simon Cowell tries to put together on X Factor. <laughs> he puts some random people together and says, you could be called the hot lot. How about that? And it doesn't work. <laughs> that, he, he's missing something there. I think you've got it. You're in, you're in the wrong career here, Nick. You should be in producing boy bands. <laughs> I know. Um, all right, sticking with vaccines, let's do this one. An inexorable rise in excess mortality since the vaccine rollout doesn't sound great. Uh, no, and um, no. This is uh, this is uh, very worrying. Um, we we, hear, we cover a lot of vaccine side effects, and in this slot, and understandably so, because it is one of the major underreported stories in the mainstream uh, media, as our listeners uh, will well be aware. And <clears throat> this is a great analysis by one of our regular contributors, Nick Bowler, and he's been looking at non-respiratory mortality trends. Now that sounds like a a, a mouthful, but all it means is he's looked at he's looked at deaths from things other than like that are classified as flu deaths right so the so every year there's a flu wave or so-called flu wave um in in the winter it you know it could be a variety of viruses respiratory deaths basically and we all know it, it rises in the winter and falls in the summer and it varies from year to year how severe that is so people talk about a severe a bad flu year or a, or a mild flu year right and the point but the point is there's a lot of variation in that 
um, in the, that number. So what he's done is he said, well, what if what if if we take out those respiratory deaths and just look at what he calls core mortality, so deaths from other causes, to see what's going on there. And what he found was those deaths from non-respiratory causes um, were remarkably stable over time. So they don't they don't vary from year to year like uh, like flu deaths do because of having different severities of flu seasons. And so and so this allowed him to do an analysis, which you can see in the article on the site, uh, where he looked at how that changed during the pandemic. And that stable level, there was a little bit of an increase during the pandemic, which skeptics say those were lockdown deaths. Mainstream tends to say that they're misclassified COVID deaths in the way that they try and put everything on COVID, you know. But in any case, it was only relatively small. But then once the vaccine rollout started in the early 2021, um, then you suddenly get this. It's like it's like it's like a hockey stick, like it's a it's a classic climate climate change hockey stick, except this one's actual real data and not just made up stuff. And it just and it just goes up and up and up, so that by uh, this time, by the by the present day, it's now up over 100,000 uh, cumulative. Uh, excess um, uh, deaths from non-respiratory causes uh, since since the vaccine rollout started, and uh, and this is uh, obviously a remarkable and worrying, very worrying finding. And Nick says, well, this 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 should be uh, much more central to uh, to analysis as authorities uh, look into or should be looking into what's what's causing uh, the, uh, the, the the alarmingly high level of deaths of excess deaths um, and why it's been so high since uh, well they say well since the pandemic but really since the the vaccine rollout um, but of course as we've heard before uh, the government has now said um, like most governments around the world they've said that they've got no intention of looking into this so uh, we just have to hope that people other than governments and scientists who have access to the data will actually carry on uh, looking at this uh, stuff uh, sooner rather than later and not just let it be brushed under the carpet. Yeah. Um, should we get on to this one about lockdowns, which is very much in the same ballpark of uh, in, thematically? So it's lockdowns, a global policy failure of gigantic proportions, say experts. Well, I could have told you that and I'm not even an expert. That's right. It's the drum we've been banging since, uh, well, since since April uh, 2020 on the um, on the Daily Skeptic and uh, and lockdown skeptics as it was uh, previously. Um, we we all knew that lockdowns were going to be a global policy failure of gigantic proportions. They were going to be a disaster. Uh, but a report has come out. It's from a researcher uh, uh, Johns Hopkins. Institute. Uh, Johns Hopkins is a major university in in America. Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise. It's a bit of a mouthful, but that's that's what it is. It's uh, it's, uh, led by um, Steve Hanker. And and him and his colleagues have uh, have done the study. It's um, there was a pre- there was a preprint of it uh, last year, uh, which made some waves. And now, uh, an, if you like, a peer reviewed version of a polished up version has been published by the Institute of Economic Affairs. Uh, it confirms basically what we've what studies have shown since uh, since uh, way early on since 2020. Uh, the lockdowns uh, do very very little uh, to to actually prevent. Uh, COVID deaths uh, to prevent uh, to prevent deaths from the virus. Uh, they found that uh, they looked at twenty thousand studies um, and and narrowed them down to twenty two uh, that they could actually use because so many studies are, are useless. And they point out that in the United States uh, the models and they they're particularly damning about uh, Neil Ferguson's uh, Imperial College uh, London models. Uh, as we know, are absolutely 
awful um, predictions, uh, very far out. And they predicted between 1.7 million and 2.2 million COVID deaths in the United States, uh, states, most of those in the first wave, of course. And however, this they've now looked at the data. That's what this study does. And it finds uh, that lockdowns in the United States prevented just between 4,345, that's very precise, and 15,586 deaths in the United States. So between 4,000 and 16,000, let's do a bit more of a rounding there, deaths in the United States. Uh, So just nowhere near, and that's by looking at the actual data. And of course, this is assuming that they saved any at all, which, you know, that's disputable. But on the basis of, of their uh, techniques, looking at meta-analyses, uh, looking at the actual effects of, um, or the actual apparent effects, comparing uh, different states and different countries, um, and seeing how and comparing their outcomes. That is the kind of level of effect that that method uh, will suggest. So, um, I mean, you can look at you can look at places that like Sweden, which which didn't use very few lockdowns, and uh, sorry, uh, which did no lockdowns and very very few restrictions and have uh, come out with the, the best excess mortality in Europe, as we looked at uh, last week. And you can say, well, maybe it doesn't look like they saved any at all. But anyway, that's what, that's, this is the figure that their, uh, that their methodology came out with. And it's completely damning um, in itself, even if, as we might say, it seems to be, even that seems to exaggerate it. But I particularly like this paragraph uh, from the, uh, this is the Epoch Times article, um, and they've interviewed the authors and they're reporting on this, this, uh, this report. And, they, and they, they, they lay out the failures of Neil Ferguson's Imperial College uh, modelling team uh, since uh, in the last uh, 20 years. They say in 2002... So Hank says that the, 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 the dreadful record of, of Imperial College started with the UK foot and mouth disease epi- epidemic in 2001, uh, which their models predicted that daily case incidences would peak at 420. But in fact, at the time, the number of cases had already peaked at just over 50 and was already falling. So 420, 50. And then, they, and then the Epoch Times points out in 2002, Imperial College predicted up to 150,000 people in the UK would die from mad cow disease. Uh, but in 2019, the BBC reported that the actual number of UK deaths uh, from mad cow disease was 177. Uh, in 2005, uh, Neil Ferguson um, predicted up to 200 million deaths worldwide uh, from the H5N1 bird flu. But according to the World Health Organization, between 2003 and, and now, 2023, just 458 people died from that virus worldwide. So 200 million, 458. Um, and despite this, uh, as the Epoch Times points out, that has, it didn't prevent uh, anyone, including the BBC, from amplifying the crazy scenarios and predictions of Neil Ferguson and, and his team at Imperial College uh, London uh, to scare everyone into following these uh, ridiculous policies, which this report now shows um, had basically zero effect. Yeah, mad cow. That the mad cow nonsense destroyed my hometown of the lakes, and we still resent it. But my favorite quote from the article was where he talks about the Imperial College models as ideal fear-generating machines for politicians and governments that crave more power. And he quotes H. L. Mencken, who said the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populist alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by an endless series of hobgoblins. Yeah, how about that? Brilliant quote, and just some just sums up the pandemic, really, doesn't it? And we are and we are now living, and, we, and of course we see that with the so-called climate emergency as well. 
um, and just an endless series of apparent emergencies to keep the population terrorised, terrified, and therefore amenable to whatever state of emergency and whatever so-called emergency powers and surveillance they want to bring upon us and censorship as more and more as we've been seeing as, as we've been seeing with the, with banks in the last in the last week it's just it's just relentless isn't it nick yeah absolutely and do you want to quickly fit in this little quite amusing climate find here which is that three typhoon jets landed next to thermometer when britain's record temperature of 40.3 degrees was recorded and we talked about this a bit in the past they they do them at, they test these things at airports and next to jets but actually three typhoon jets landed right next to the thermometer it was kind of funny yeah this is a brilliant another brilliant scoop for the daily skeptic our uh, it guy ian rons uh, did uh, put in a, a freedom of information request in to follow up on this story because we've reported uh, in the past that, as you say, that the record uh, was set at RAF Coningsby at a thermometer that is halfway down the runway. And, and the record only lasted for about 60 seconds, where the temperature went up by about over half a degree. And then 60 seconds later came back down. That's how long this temperature, this England all-time record temperature lasted for. Um, I mean, pretty ridiculous. You always had to suspect that it was caused by uh, landing jets on the runway uh, going past, raising the temperature. But our brilliant IT guy, um, Ian, decided to actually find out the truth on this. He put in our uh, FOI request to find out the times that jets landed on that day at RAF Coningsby and uh, and discovered that, in fact, three typhoons landed uh, within the exact window uh, that that record uh, was set. So it's, so it's, 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 no, that's, I mean, that, that essentially proves that that record was not caused by the temperature that day. It was caused by uh, non-climatic, uh, non-weather, um, non-natural events. So as Chris, our environment editor, says, it's well past time that the uh, the, meet, the Met Office made a statement about this and looked into this properly and, uh, and stopped basing uh, records and claims on these thermometers. I mean, many of these thermometers are, are poorly located like this. The record... As there was, there were actually five places in England that declared temperatures over forty degrees on that day. So five of them claim a similar record, uh, but actually all five of them you can um, have problems with uh, with that kind of corruption of, of of heat. They're not they're poorly sited, poorly located, um, and uh, Chris goes through them in the article. So so may, so it looks like maybe nowhere in England really got over 40 degrees that day. But the, the real point, of course, um, is that they, they need to get these thermometers sorted out of sight, get, put them in better places um, and stop making things up. Yeah, and if they really wanted to gin up the figures, they should have recorded them in, in my flat, a new build flat in London. That's where it really gets hot. It's unlivable for the entire summer. Though I'm not saying that means we're facing global catastrophe. And I'm just saying they could have stuck the thermometer in my living room. Yeah, these, these well-insulated new bills that are designed for British winters uh, to save energy, but haven't thought through the fact that British summers can sometimes get pretty warm and then you are, uh, you are trapped in your oven, your cooker. Yeah, yeah. we need, uh, need aircon, if only to annoy the Guardian. All right, thanks, Will. Good stories, and I'm sure we'll see you again next week. Brill, thanks, Nick. All right, well, that was Will and Toby. Should we now do everyone's favourite section? It's Peak Woke. Yay. So I have a few Peak Wokes this week, Toby. What uh, Shall I start with a couple? I've got so many. Well, let's just do this one. The first one was a lifeboat one, RNLI, Royal National Lifeboat Institution. Sorry, it's been a long episode, guys. Anyway, so there's whistleblowers. We heard the story first that there was wokeness going on in the RNLI, which is quite hard to say. 
And now the update is the whistleblowers have come out and said just how bad it is. So, for example, some some people were called racist because they put uh, some migrants on a separate raft because they thought they might be infectious. They seemed to be ill with COVID, and this was deemed to be racist. There was criticism of uh, bullying alpha males, and basically they're trying to woke up the lifeboat service. But the problem is, if you want to pick up someone in the sea, you tend to need to be someone who's competent and doing the job rather than someone who's sort of perfectly woke. Toby, did you follow this one? I have a sort of no. grasp of it, as you can tell. Okay, I didn't, let's leave I that didn't one. It, no. <laughs> Move on that. That was pretty peak woke. Uh, how about this one? Police under pressure over thin blue line ban at Pride. So the police were told that they couldn't wear the thin blue line badge, which to them commemorates sort of policemen who, who were killed in action uh, and murdered in response to a burglary, for example. So they want to wear this, but they were told they couldn't wear it by the Met. And they were shockingly told that the Met's dress code policy sets out the official uniform police officers must adhere to while serving the public without fear or favor. That policy has not changed, the Met said. But we all know that policemen dress up in all kinds of rainbow nonsense during Pride. There's that weird picture of them with the people dressed as dogs on leashes. They do all this insane stuff that surely goes against the dress code. And, um, and yet, you're not allowed to wear the thin blue line badge because it might offend the LGBT plus community, which everything does, by the way. And it's because, apparently, there's a similar symbol in America that's linked to so-called transphobic far-right groups, so-called, so-called. But the other part that really damns them is that they say, they say um, you can't wear the thin blue line badge. These have been linked to far-right and anti-trans groups in the U.S. And this year's Pride is focusing very much on the trans community, which is an overtly political statement. They've just talked about no fear or favor. <laughs> and that's the most political possible statement, Toby. That's they just contradicted themselves almost in the same sentence. But it reminds me of... Um, uh, I think Pep Guardiola, um, he was reprimanded by the FA for wearing a badge to signal his solidarity with the Catalans who were being kind of brutally oppressed by the Spanish authorities, him being a Catalan or from Catalonia. Um, and um, he was told, no, you can't, you can't wear that. That's political. Um, we do have a blanket prohibition on the wearing of any political badges, political insignia, T-shirts, anything, you know, um, uh, during FA-regulated football matches. But not BLM insignia, apparently. Not taking the knee. All that is absolutely fine. You can have a big patch on your elbow saying Black Lives Matter. Every footballer basically is forced to wear one. That's totally okay because that's not political. Yeah, it's complete balls. Uh, what's your first Pete Woke, Toby? Well, I've only got one peak woke, but um, it's quite a big one. So um, uh, you'll have seen this, I'm sure. But um, a colonel um, has been forced out of the Army Reserve uh, for stating men can't be women. So um, Colonel Dr. Kelvin Wright, um, a medic um, uh, in the Army Reserve um, with 14 years of unblemished service, done two tours of duty in Afghanistan where... He risked his own life to save the life of wounded uh, soldiers in the field. Um, uh, he, 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 he was placed under investigation after he uh, posted a quote from Helen Joyce um, uh, on his uh, personal Facebook account. And, and the quote said, if women cannot stand in a public place and say men cannot be women, then we do not have women's rights at all. 
Uh, that's all he did. He didn't. He didn't add any comment. He didn't embellish it in any way. He just quoted that statement by Helen Joyce, and as a consequence of doing that, in spite of his fourteen years of unblemished service, two tours in Afghanistan, he was placed under investigation, um, and he was told um, by the investigating officer that one of the things he was being investigated for was whether his social media post had breached the army's uh, trends inclusion at work policy or something along those lines. Um, and then, um, uh, so he, he, he's a member of the free speech union. Um, he went public with this story end of last week. Um, got a huge, there was a huge outpouring of sympathy, uh, quite understandably. Um, uh, you know, surely the British army should be defending women's rights, not attacking people, defending them. It just seems so bizarre, so arse over tit, but I guess typical of how woke the army's become. Um, and um, Ben Wallace, very inadvisedly, the defence secretary, hit back on Twitter um, uh, a couple of days ago, I think it was on Friday evening, uh, and said, um, this, is a, th- this story is rubbish and untrue. Um, uh, in fact, this uh, officer was was investigated uh, merely for breaching um, the uh, army's social media policy um, and had nothing to do with the views he was expressing. Um, uh, and and it, he, he wasn't, um, uh, had he been found guilty, you know, it would have been a minor reprimand. He wouldn't have, uh, you know, um, been court-martialed or or dismissed. Uh, he overreacted. He misunderstood exactly what he was being investigated for. The story is rubbish and untrue. I mean, unbelievably unwise response for uh, Ben Wallace to make to this story. Shouldn't he have just said the British Army should not be investigating its any of its personnel for supposedly breaching a trans inclusion in the workplace policy, least of all someone like him. Um, and instead of um, trying to defend the army's investigation of them, should have said the army should simply... And incidentally, the investigation is continuing. So the army hasn't closed this investigation, even though he's resigned. So at the very least, Ben Wallace could have said, actually... This guy's an outstanding officer. The army should close the investigation, thank him for his service, and maybe give him a medal. Um, uh, but instead, he said, no, the story's rubbish and untrue. I mean, quite extraordinary. Yeah. So we then helped um, Kelvin respond to that by you know, pointing out that he was actually told by his investigating officer that he was being investigated for a possible breach of this trans policy. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, so Ben Wallace just got his facts completely wrong. Um, and... Um, yeah, and, and and he's now we're now exploring various remedies with with Kelvin, um, uh, but um, I don't think that yeah I don't think this is the last you'll have heard of this story. And and the outpouring of public sympathy. If you look at look at the in which, there's a story in which Kelvin defends himself. The story about you know Ben Wallace doubling down on the way in which the army treated this outstanding individual, um, and uh, and and you know. Kelvin's response and um, the comments are just unbelievable. Every single comment supporting Kelvin and, and and quite a few of them saying, "I used to think quite highly of the Defence Secretary, but he's now really gone down in my estimation for responding in this way um, to um, you know a soldier effectively whistleblowing um, about the army um, having been become completely captured." 
Yeah, absolutely disgusting. Never underestimate a Tory's ability to fail to grasp the culture war and to fail to take the right side. It, it shocks me. They, they just never get it. Um, so that was a very good one. I might throw another one in. At the risk of making this already pretty misogynistic show even worse, Toby, but Miss England pageant has scrapped its swimwear round, which is pretty Pete Woke. To me, it's part of the war on beauty. And I always say, because I'm a big feminist, actually, I'm going to switch and suddenly become a feminist, because actually... Remember when the darts girls were banned? I always said, why are you banning the darts girls? These are working class girls in many cases. They happen to be good looking. They're using their assets, which is their beauty. They're enhancing that. And then they're using that to make money. It's a very liberal feminist position I have. Whereas intellectuals say, no, you can't do that because it offends me. It's like, you have a different set of talents. You, you have maybe a perhaps a more brain power, which you're probably misusing for some lefty nonsense. But their, ta- their talent is beauty. And that's perfectly reasonable. Everyone has different talents. So I've never understood why we're not allowed to celebrate beauty in, in and of itself because it is a value. And also, I would argue that male bodybuilding is every bit as... If, if, if a swimwear round is demeaning, male bodybuilders wear those tiny underpants and have to take steroids and like ridiculous amounts of fake tan. I mean, what's that? So it's just a contest. Yeah. It's, it, it's totally fine. But I love this quote from... Some of the women are saying, well, they liked it. Look, someone says here... I'm so disappointed the swimwear was banned as I enjoy wearing swimwear and I've worked hard for my body. That was Eloise Sarasani. And and then someone else said this really funny sentence, it it empowers women to be confident in their own skin, especially as there is immense competition and comparisons on social media regarding body imagery. Fine. But then she goes, however, I understand that in pageantry, it's a lot more about our inner beauty from within. It's really not. It's totally the outer beauty. It's really about the outer beauty. That's what it's all about. It's not. It's not chess. Gone to yeah, and it's sort of. It's sort of. Um, it's odd, isn't it, that um, that the feminist ire is kind of focused on beauty contests. Um, you, know, you can't possibly have swimwear rounds in beauty contests. That shouldn't be part of how you judge a beauty pageant. But they don't seem to kick up a fuss about you know uh, all the women parading around in bikinis on. Love Island um, and every other kind of similar kind of, um, you know, flesh on show reality show, you know, um, it's so selective. Yeah. Yeah. And Instagram seems to get a bit of a free pass. Yeah. It's all very strange. You never know which one's going to annoy them. Um, I thought I've got one final potential Pete woke Toby, and this might be a new thing. Well, not a new thing, but this might be more of a woke on woke, which was that just stop oil threatened London's Pride Parade and they said they might disrupt it if their demands were not met. And it's quite funny because they were not totally wrong that basically Pride is a sort of virtue signaling nonsense and they actually are in league with all these oil companies and things like that. And it's just empty garbage. I mean, that part was correct. Where they're wrong, of course, is that they're both completely awful organizations. But but what's quite funny is they both claim to be sort of uh, they're the antidote to catastrophe. So Pride representatives said that called for the the weekend's event to be given the respect and focus it deserves. In an increasingly hostile and unsafe world, which is a sort of nonsense idea that LGBTQ plus people are sort of constantly under threat, whereas like they basically run the world now. And and then the other one is, is of course, that that Just Stop Oil claim that that they're standing against, you know, obviously the, the collapse of everything. Whereas actually both of them, are actually wrong about the what's going on, but are both contributing towards the collapse of Western society by just disrupting it all the time and ruining it. What do you think to that? Yeah, it's like, yeah, they're trying to out-victim each other, aren't they? Kind of uh, an out-saviour 
one another. It's like, no, we're saving the world. No, we're saving the world. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, handbags at dawn, um, but non-leather handbags on one side and rainbow-colored handbags on the other. Um, yeah, it's, but I quite like this. I think maybe we, we should have a kind of new subsection of Pete Woke, which is kind of woke on woke, the woke equivalent of blue on blue when a, when Tories attack each other. Um, it's um, it's uh, And there are more and more examples of this. It's as though, you know, the idea that we're all part of an intersectional rainbow alliance is beginning to crack so i think we should we should draw we should highlight this and it does seem to be maybe not peak woke but the inevitable kind of evolution of woke is you know woke on woke violence yeah and it makes you really unsure who to back it's like for me it'd be like man city versus liverpool or it's godzilla versus king kong although they're both pretty cool maybe a better comparison is savile versus glitter do you know what i mean like (laughs) who are you gonna back um all right that's pretty much it. I mean, it's another epic show. I wanted to do less, but we did two hours again, and it'll probably be longer by the time it comes out because of Will's bit. So, I mean, hey, people like it, but, um, you know, we've done another epic one. So maybe we can look at some reviews. Hmm, someone's written second best podcast of the week. I'm not sure about that. Two five-star generals in the war on woke, hence the rating, which was five stars. Keep up the good work, gentlemen. But it doesn't actually say what the best one is. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it mine the current thing or is it London calling? Uh, I mean, you know, we could we could uh, we, we could debate. They've been very cryptic there. Let's see. I didn't know that. I've never seen that one before. Let's just come in. So let's have a look. Um, hmm, here's one. Nick and Toby, they're guru eight. So this comes from an. I'm not sure. I get the joke there. They're, this comes from an, an actual woman. A short review that I needed to write, as you both deserve your five star rating. I've only discovered your podcast a few weeks ago and look forward to when each episode is released. A good combination of debate and humor. Oh, good, because I'm reading these for the first time. So, uh, oh, that one, that one's not so good about Toby. I'll skip that one. Um, this one's not You're very nice about James. Maybe we'll be, huh? You're making that up. No, no. Surely it, there are none which are about me. No, it just says I'm definitely team Nick as, as well, Toby's a bit of a cock. This next one, though, says great podcast. <laughs> Toby and Nick are great together. Clearly, Toby prefers working with Nick instead of the Waitrose David Ike and his descent into the conspiracy cesspit. Maybe I shouldn't have read that one either. It's a bit anti-someone. Uh, <laughs> poor, poor James. So interesting reviews there, mainly positive. Um, and we're still retaining our 4.8, but we need to get back to 4.9, really. And uh, probably I should read the reviews and vet them first, but it was pretty interesting. Anything you want to um, plug, Toby? Well, a plug with it. The, the Free Speech Union is hosting... Um, the launch of Sharon Davis's book, Sharon Davis, this uh, British Olympic swimmer, gender critical feminist heroine of the kind of biological reality movement. Um, and we are hosting her book party tomorrow and tickets have sold out, in-person tickets have sold out. But if you're a member of the FSU, you'll 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 still be able to watch it on Zoom for free. There's a panel discussion. Uh, should be very interesting. Great people on the panel. But if you want to watch that discussion and show some solidarity with the FSU and with Sharon, you can buy um, pay-per-view tickets, as it were, for £5 a pop. And you can do that um, by going to the Free Speech Union's website, freespeechunion.org, and going on the events page and clicking on the link, and it'll tell you how to do that. Um, so, yeah, um, love to see more people watch that online because we've sold out now in person. Okay. And I might actually just give a quick plug to myself. If you go to Nick Dixon Comic, my Twitter account, you can go to my link tree, and that has all my links now. And it has a buy me a coffee, which is a very nice thing where people buy you a coffee they just give you anywhere from five pounds upwards and I, I like this i saw people giving it to james Dellingpole, and i was like hang on why is he getting all these coffees 
even though I don't literally drink coffee, it's a, it's a metaphor, you see, Toby, and they give you money, basically. It's great. And I appreciate it because basically I, I, people are appreciating, I hope, the fact that we put out all this free content. I churn out my podcast and this, and obviously I do GB, but I, I do get paid for that. But all these other things, I don't really get paid for. They don't really make that much money, do they? So, so um, you know, they're more like labors of love, especially my podcast. Um, so so has, you know, has, anyone, has anyone bought you a coffee yet? Yeah, loads of people bought me a coffee. I, I put it out and I immediately got loads of coffees. I was like, this is brilliant. Why didn't I do this earlier? And then they keep coming in. Wow. Even when I don't promote it, they just appear, they find it on my on my link tree. So I thought that those initial flurry of them was nice, but then they keep buying them. So I really appreciate it, guys, because <laughs> I'm not rich, as we know. And, I'm, and you know, we don't need to get into my woes, but it, we, we're doing all this work and I'm glad some people appreciate it. And I, I, I really appreciate your donations. But also... In general, go to the current thing, which is my other podcast, and still listen to the Weekly Skeptic, obviously, as you are. But uh, we've got so many great guests. Alistair Williams just did a great one. Calvin Robinson, not everyone's cup of tea, but it was a good one. Dominic Frisbee, I'm just looking through. Andrew Doyle, Lord Frost, Andrew Lawrence, so many great ones. And maybe we'll even have uh, uh, old James Dellingpole coming up. Let's let's see, because that could be the ultimate crossover episode. Then maybe Toby will have to come on and rebut everything that was said in it. But <laughs> let's see. We've got a great one with James S. is coming out as well. So that's the current thing podcast. Anything else, Toby, or should we leave it there? No, I think let's, two hours let's leave it enough. there. I think we've 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 uh, entertained our listeners long enough. Hope so. All right. So until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.